You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. The next 120 seconds bring you more action and excitement than most people experience in a lifetime. Who are you running away from now? Running? Me? Now you know me better than that. Three days and three nights and not a word. Well, I've been burned to so. All I knew you were lying in the gutter somewhere with a knife in your back. But we have to go on your star pupil. Because I reflect back to you your own talent. I'd hate to take a bite of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. <laughs> Don't turn your back on it. You might find a knife in it. We're friends, Holly. We go as far back as when you were a fresh kid congressman, don't we? Why is it that everything you say sounds like a threat? You've got it all. But you're a dead man, Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Uh, he's a cop and he's feeling violent. We're finally going Katano <laughs> mode, everybody. Join the sleaze. We decide on all the official <laughs> ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for, uh, I don't even know how long, three years coming up on four years probably. Yeah, wow. Um, which is nuts. Um, or I can't, I'm getting my years confused too. I don't even know if that's right. There's like yeah. 90 plus <laughs> bonus episodes, almost a hundred bonus episodes waiting for you. Um, as in even more, if you include our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release films and we just uh, yeah. did one where we were talking about, uh, Dune and last duel. That was like, like over an hour three hours long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, if you have any interest in that, patreon.com slash Lizoids podcast. And speaking of which, uh, we have a lot of patrons to thank this week and awesome. they are L repugnant um a friend of the pod Alex Acton Jones nice. uh, who upped his pledge to $10 oh, uh Nick thank you, Alex. Nick Nick B. Uh, yeah, he, Alex, I think he, I thought he already was at $10. I thought Maybe he, was he dropped too. for a little bit. Were we giving it to Al- him for free? <laughs> Alex was coming to the virtual screenings that we do once a month, which by the way, uh, at, at the time that you guys are listening to this, uh, it's November still. So we'll, I think either this week or next week, by the time you guys are listening to this, uh, check out the Patreon to see which date exactly we're going to be watching yeah. Detour. Um, so look look forward to that uh we also had alex walsh uh who upgraded his uh from five dollars to ten dollars and who was going to be joining us for detour this month so thanks to alex both alex's uh nick b who pledged at the annual uh rate and sign up for a whole year of the show so thanks to uh nick uh david guestson uh daniel olson oh you guys you guys Everyone makes fun of my pronunciations in the Discord. <laughs> and um, at some point, I'm going to get Jamie to do this because, okay. <laughs> or just give me U- all the hard names. Uberlin Gizbar. I'm sure that that was brutalized, but thank you. Devin. Yeah. Uh, Devin Ogaz. Adam T. And Robert Masalik. Um, thanks to all of uh, those. New signees. Hope you guys are enjoying yeah, all of the bonus episodes. Thanks for supporting the show. The other plug um, 
is uh, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I, I see the stats, I know that you are, I see you right now listening, scroll down to the bottom, give us a good old rating and review down there, it helps us climb the ranks at iTunes and find new listeners, and a lot of you actually have been doing the ratings and reviews recently, awesome. I know I say it every week, but people have been doing it recently, so keep it up, thanks so much. Yeah, it really helps. Uh, and then the... The last plug, as always, is uh, merch. If you guys like the poster art that local uh, Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, uh, you can get that put on basically anything you can think of. Um, uh, you know, and and it's the holiday season. Think about it. You know, yeah. Some, some your your grandkid wants a hoodie, um, and they want the hoodie with the Sleezoids logo on it. The link is in the description, uh, as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com for anyone interested. Uh, but that is the intro. It has really become a mouthful. Welcome back <laughs> to another week. As always, I am your host, uh, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys, uh, free listeners, would have heard from us, and we would have been uh, talking with a special returning guest, uh, Jason Bailey. And uh, he brought uh, on with him because he has just finished his book on uh, New York City cinema uh, and uh, the, the movies that made the city, according to him, uh, called Fun City Cinema. And uh, so because we were in the thick of November and he was going to, you know, sort of kick it off for us, um, he wanted to bring on a movie called The Window. 1949 uh, and a uh, sort of some, an, an update on the, uh, the <laughs> same premise, which is of uh, a child witnessing a murder and finding themselves in, in peril as a result. Uh, Larry Cohen's Perfect Strangers from 1984, which is uh, more of, you know, a, tr- a more 80s uh, synth, more erotic uh, yeah. kind of thriller. A very common uh, movie. <laughs> Yes, versus uh, The Window, which is, you know, a more traditional noir. The the director behind that shot Hitchcock's film, um, Notorious. So that's more of the vibe that you're kind of leaning there. But a uh, little Bobby Driscoll. What a performance in that film oh, as, yeah. as the little Unreal. boy who witnesses uh, a murder and then has every adult in his life uh, tell him that he's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. Yeah, so if you didn't uh, check out that episode, that was on any podcast listener of choice. Uh, that was the episode two weeks ago. And then uh, last week, we we had a, a very special episode. We, we moved our, our setting from New York uh, to a very different city, and we moved uh, over to London. Uh, and we saw what was happening in crime cinema across the pond, uh, especially here in the 1980s doing neo-noirs. We talked about The Long Good Friday from 1980 and Mona Lisa from 1986, both films starring Bob Hoskins. It was our first time talking about him on the show. He's unreal. And both performances were uh, incredible and yes. very different, um, very different kind kinds of roles that he has to play, despite the fact that he is a uh, he is a very short, barrel chested, receding hairline, um, <laughs> you know, ball of anger, which he uses um, to his advantage in both movies. Somehow it's, it's pretty yeah, awesome. See, one, he's powerful and violent. And in the other <laughs> yeah. one, he's a little bit more um, vulnerable um, and kind of sweet. Um, but yeah, still both has very, the violent outbursts, of course, but. A little more sweet, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But both very, very good films. Um, and yeah, it was it was a lot of fun talking about those. We ended up doing a pretty long episode on those films, I think, both because mm-hmm. uh, they, they kind of surprised... Uh, I wouldn't say I was surprised by how much I liked them. I, I definitely heard that uh, they were they were quite good. But uh, yeah. they, they still kind of shocked me um, how much I, I liked them, especially Bob Hoskins. 
But uh, yeah, patreon.com slash Thesoids podcast. That was last week's bonus episode for November. Uh, but moving on, we have a special returning guest uh, joining us this week to continue November. And I, I kind of thought of him because uh, he he kind of mentioned it a little bit while we had him on the last episode that, you know, he, he was really into these kinds of movies. And so he's someone who I thought about like the second I was plotting it out. Um, and that is uh, some of our listeners will be familiar uh, from him on uh, on Twitter at uh, at Manovsky article. But uh, that is Casey. Casey, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, and I'm glad to be back. Uh, I am sorry that I missed uh, the week of the Beast Bob Hoskins. Yes. <laughs> As you have said, those are two of the best crime movies ever made. Um, but I am delighted to be here with you today talking about film noir. Yeah, well, it was it was interesting because, um, you know, obviously our, our first episode was in New York and then our second episode was in London. And then here you are bringing with you London and New York. Once again, we can't leave these cities. This is, this is just where all crime happens. <laughs> That's right. Um, but also, you know, it was it was very funny because when you initially initially asked me like what film or pitched which films you wanted to bring, I can't remember. Was it Long Good Friday or it, Mona it, Lisa it, was the film? It was uh, it was Long Good Friday that I had brought. And you said, actually, we just booked that one like seconds before I asked you so yeah, <laughs> yeah and, uh, and it was and it was so funny because it was like you know it was it was the episode right before your episode too so it just it was very funny I've, I don't think I've ever had anyone ask me to do a, <laughs> a, a movie that we had put in like right on the other side of their episode that we were asking <laughs> them to be a part of it's okay um, though because I'm still thrilled to talk about the two that we are going to talk about today Absolutely. And uh, Casey, as as the show goes, the guests bring on the films with them. So what are those films that you brought with you today? Uh, so the parameters you gave me were very simply, you just wanted to talk about some classic noir films. And I know that, you know, you all have discussed a lot of neo-noir recently. So I wanted to stick to like that classical period. So I picked two from the 50s. As you said, one is set in New York, one is set in London. Um, but I wanted to pick movies that went outside of what a lot of people expect noir to be uh, in the way that a lot of people's uh, view of noir is that it's about private detectives and gangsters and things of that nature. So I wanted to pick two that had nothing really to do with those topics, but were still uh, very much within the noir mold. So I chose uh, 1950s Night and the City and uh, 1957's Sweet Smell of Success. And I chose these for a few reasons. Uh, The first was that they are both films about uh, shameless self-promoters who are desperately working within the like promotional business uh, and the ways that their various schemes uh, tear their lives and the lives of everyone around them apart. Um, And also uh, there are two films that would not exist without the, uh, the rise of McCarthyism and the house of un-American affairs committee. Yeah, I, I read that especially about Night Night in in the City, where you know he was uh, Jules Dassin, who directed that, was actually uh, blacklisted himself, and partially why the film is made in London and not in <laughs> probably not in New York. <laughs> yeah, w- 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 without uh, without that situation, sending Jules Dassin out of America and to London, we would have never even gotten his most iconic movie, Rafifi, a few years later. Yeah, so no. This of is a pivotal step toward a lot of noir developments, and yeah, it's also I I had wrongly assumed for a long time that Dassin was French, 
because of Rafifi, <laughs> but no, he's just an American yeah. guy from New York. And and, uh, yeah, just one of, one of the most famous uh, French crime films was just directed by an American. <laughs> <laughs> just something funny to think about. But yeah, Absolutely. we'll definitely get into all that when we uh, we jump into um, Night in the City, which I think we are going to do right now. You Let's do it. You double you Judas! Harry! Harry, go back! Turn me in! Cut my throat for a thousand quid! Go back, Harry! I'll get help! Right, we are talking Night and the City, the 1950 film noir uh, directed by Jules Dassin and uh, starring uh, Richard Widmark, uh, who's someone we've actually talked about uh, before, and I'm glad we have another chance to kind of talk about him because we yeah. uh, we previously talked about uh, Pick Up on South Street, Sam Fuller, yeah, great um, on the show. I, I think I think we did that last um, November, and it was cool seeing him there. You know, also playing you know like a like a, i think he's a, he's a pickpocket in that film he's a great thief that was another um, uh, movie i had considered mentioning but i saw that you'd already done it it could have been very well have been a widmark double feature because a widmark double feature no he it would have been a good one, one. Of the he- he's one of the heroes of uh of film noir that i don't think gets enough attention now yeah no he has a very strange um kind of sensibility to him as a performer because you know he's really not like a like a like a Bogart he's not you know he's he's not particularly you know even someone like Bogart I guess you could argue he's not like tr- you know necessarily the most traditionally handsome man who's ever been in film he has some stark features to him but there's something very uh sweaty and unromantic about making Richard Widmark your your leading man he just he doesn't yeah. quite have that suave charm to him in a way he always feels feels like he's kind of slimy in a way and it's perfect for a character um who here and you know as is sort of fitting for the double feature i think actually both performances i think are trying to do the same thing the difference is is that tony curtis you know was actually very charming and known for being kind of a romantic comedy kind of leading man type um but both films you know are very very ugly depictions of their leading characters these dudes who kind of navigate the underworld and see everyone around them as a tool for their own ambition or in the case of this film a, a little bit of desperation um and then obviously the the subsequent cost of of thinking and kind of acting um that way and both films very very (laughs) grim um and bleak which which did kind of clarify itself to me when i realized that you know jules dassin he's this very he was this very young american jewish communist filmmaker who made his way through the hollywood system via places like rko uh who we just talked about because they um they were the ones who made the window um so i think he worked for them around the same time that they were shooting the window um, and then eventually he went to MGM and became one of the more celebrated sort of workman noir filmmakers of his era, um, making things like brute force thieves highway, the naked city, uh, which we actually just mentioned with Jason Bailey as well, because he yeah, just finished his book, familiar. obviously on New York city cinema. Um, and that film is actually often credited as the first movie of its kind that was shot entirely on real New York, um, 
locations. So Jules Dassin was obviously, you know, like trying to get on that front, give it that authentic kind of grit and texture to it, which he does here with London. But it, it was funny that Jason informed us through the research in his book. He actually discovered that the window was the first film actually shot. It was shot one year before the right. Naked City, uh, but sat unreleased on a shelf at RKO Pictures for two years because Howard Hughes is a moron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and he thought fail. that the movie would bomb. Yeah. <laughs> and then ended banger. up being a huge hit. But uh, but yeah, obviously, as as Casey mentioned, too, you know, um, Dasson would, you know, also, you know, go on to make one of the earliest sort of, you know, very well-known French crime heist films, uh, Rafifi, that would eventually inspire, you know, filmmakers like Jean-Pierre Melville and, you know, subsequently American crime filmmakers who were inspired by by Melville, people like Walter Hill, Michael it's, Mann. Uh, it's actually because of Melville that uh, Dassin got the Rafifi job. Uh, Melville, re- Melville so recommended him for the for the uh, director's seat when he couldn't do it himself. That is very cool. That is very cool um, because because again uh, we, we kind of partially mentioned it, but like you know it's so crazy that you know you talk about Jean Pierre Melville, who's obviously you know one of the most celebrated French um, crime filmmakers of all time for obvious reason, um, but like one of the next biggest ones was directed just by this guy, this American guy, who and you're like, well, how the hell did that happen? And it, and it happened because yeah, he was. Um, uh, he was blacklisted and actually blacklisted um, because of his politics uh, during the production of this film. Um, and that's the reason this film takes place in London, because he actually wasn't even allowed to step foot on the studio property that he was working for. Um, despite yeah, the fact he, that the studio still wanted him to make the film because he was already under contract and he <laughs> had time to make a film. So they were like, make one for us. But also money you can't money. come into work. Yeah. yeah Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. His producer, uh, Daryl Zanuck, specifically gave him a script in London and said, get out of here. Like, take this and go so that we can <laughs> still make, make movies movie. with you. But oh, my God. Yeah. So that that is uh, the sort of tumultuous existence of this film. And, you know, um, you I, I would say on, on some level, you know, that that sort of cynicism that he must have felt you know, having to do that is kind of felt in the film. You know, it feels like a, you know, a kind of angry kind of resentful little film in, in, in a way about a guy who is, you know, being chased on all angles and being just absolutely swallowed by this thing that he, you know, he kind of owns in his own way. He's very skilled um, at navigating and, and this underworld. And I, I do love the way that uh, he decides to kind of trace it here um, as like, you know, nothing, but cause it's sort of similar to pick up on South street, um, where it's like, you know, it, this has a very street level view of the kind of people who pull cons and pull deals and are always trying to get up a leg up on other people. And similar to pick up on South street, which, you know, we dealt with how sad that movie was in part because it was, you know, it was a, it, there was a little bit of solidarity between the people who were living on the streets and who were desperate and needed to do this as a form of work. And there's a little bit of that here, I would say, but I would say, <laughs> That despite kind of presenting something similar, the tone of what he pre- he's presenting is a lot less, um, you know, there, there's something so, I guess, existentially sad about like in Pick Up on South Street, like Jamie, we talked about that, uh, that, that, that very weary monologue that that old lady who's been uh, stealing and begging oh, yeah. for her entire life kind of gives. There, there's less of like a, a human factor uh, to um, some of this where it's like yeah, every single no one of it. these. Ca- 
No, you you can't imagine a version of this movie that spends time with all those side characters. But like there is so much, you know, instead of finding a kind of common humanity between a lot of these people who are living on the streets or in desperate financial situations, it's really, you know, it really focuses on like the shifting alliances between the grifters. Yeah. Um, you know, who who's playing who, who's got what agenda, you know, who's even, the person who's going down and how can the rest of us profit off of that kind of deal? That's a lot of the point of view of this. Yeah. In the beginning, too, you see there's this uh, some shots where you see Harry just kind of interacting with people throughout the town. And you can tell he has a very like charismatic, outgoing, lively personality and people like him and know him. But there is uh, a big tell in every time he talks to anybody that they also don't really trust him. So he has this this mode of just moving forward and, you know, trying to work with people. But you can tell that people are pretty uh, apprehensive to, to do so. Um, even in conversations, they I, he, he, they come he, they come off as if they're like, yeah, we like you. You're charming. But. I, I really don't know if uh, trust. We know you're bullshit at this point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they, they make us aware very upfront that he has failed so many schemes at this point. And they're all yeah. the yes. next big where thing. Where the trust comes from. <laughs> yeah. And he has dragged everyone, every lowlife and, you know, somebody in London down with him at some point. And so they, they all have very credible reasons not to trust him. <laughs> right. I think I... A thing I find very interesting about uh, Widmark's character, Harry Fabian, is that he is an American, but nobody really comments on that in this otherwise British cast. Yeah. And I do, right. I did just want to pull up that I think that also might connect in some way to Dassin's experience in London. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, no, uh, yeah, he's, Widmark is, as you said, like he's this sweaty lowlife with this desperate energy and I mean, the movie does try to anchor him a little bit with this romantic subplot with Jean Tierney, who is uh, a woman who has and in some ways still does love him, mm-hmm. uh, who works at a club that he uh, constantly tries to get the owner of into his schemes. Um, <laughs> and she kind of tries to present him a a softer, more honest life, but he Always, always. She, just yeah, she, 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 she's like, I'm just going to clock in for the night shift. Why can't you just clock in for the night shift somewhere? Like, why do we need to be like yeah. hurting people? Why do we need to be, you know, constantly and on even, the run? Like the, like the opening of this film, right? It literally yeah. starts with him already sweaty, already panicked, <laughs> uh, being hounded being for debts that he owes from who knows how many schemes ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and even the first interaction uh, he has with Mary is is like him trying to convince her to give him some money so that he can invest in like I think it's a greyhound track of some kind, yes. and so it's just yes. another you know another fast uh, money making scheme that isn't probably going to work. And and he even says a line too, which is very sad when we get closer to the end, where he says it's like it's not like I'd ever steal from you, that kind of thing, mm. and uh, that definitely ends up being a lie. Um, but just his energy in this in this. Uh, scene it's just he, he's once again he's just driven to move forward he's never even when he's interacting with her and she's presenting to him maybe a better life a real relationship with somebody he's still just kind of using it as another way to scheme it, it never seems really that genuine with him a lot of the time um i still think he's more connected with mary than anyone else but it still feels as if he's he's even doing a lot of the scheming it, it, when it comes to her as well 
Oh yeah, well the, the way that the camera focuses on him like immediately going into her purse, like when she's right. not even there, and he's like let himself in. <laughs> exactly. And he's like, I was just I was just looking for a cigarette. And like she immediately <laughs> like grabs the box of cigarettes that's very obviously open and on the table. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and the way the way you see the light leave her eyes as soon as he starts another pitch, like, okay. Yeah. Oh, oh god, yeah. yeah. That's like, definitely a woman who has seen that pitch literally like twenty or thirty times already, and it's always gone terrible. And I I think that's a a, a thing that really defines him throughout this movie is that the Widmark character is he's very interested in the pitch. He's very interested in the big idea, but he has no interest in the details. Like Mm -hmm. it's it's all about moving forward and being the one with the grand idea and having the attention for having the idea. But when it comes to doing any work other than scamming the next mark to give you more money, there's no real interest to that attention to detail. Mm -hmm. Like he he definitely has, you know, uh, an inherent skill to, you know, being able to meet someone, immediately talk them up, immediately get them on his side, on his side. He can read people well, yeah. He he knows how to charm, he knows how to manipulate, and, you know, he, there are sequences where you get to see him, like, really use his skills to um, his advantage, and and to, I guess, I guess partially his credit, he, he, you know, he, he gets very, he gets an inch away from, you know, maybe for the first time actually succeeding on one of his uh, gambits. But the, 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 yeah. the, the, the issue is that the methods he has in order to do that are very thin. They're very, you know, he's, he, he's trying to build something with very shitty materials. And I like yeah. the way that um, the uh, Mary's, um, the other guy who lives in Mary's apartment complex, the way that he describes Harry, I think is really, really spot on, which is he says that Harry is, is a, an artist without an art. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that he's, he's, he's groping, just always groping for the right lever and a means to express himself. And that really is kind of the desperation you feel. I reminded, it reminded me a little bit of something like Pickpocket, uh, the Robert Bresson film, because part of that film and what's so well crafted about it is that, um, the character in that film who is a pickpocket, you get so swept up in like his actual skill at pickpocketing. They're so intense when he pulls off, uh, you know, when he pulls off a maneuver, you're like, yes, oh my God, like the way the filmmaking gets you into it. But also, you know, him doing that is, you know, what ends up getting him into prison and into trouble when there was, you know, another life was possible. So this kind of has a a similar structure to it where it's like you kind of get, based on the scenes where he is manipulating people that he has found something he's good at and what person wouldn't want to continue doing something they're really good at. But at the same time, what he's good at is literally his tragic downfall. (laughs) Yeah. And and, and he can't see that. (laughs) Everyone else he meets in the movie, uh, has a trade of some kind. They're all doing something that anchors them. I mean, even like, you know, even the neighbor you mentioned that calls him an artist that an art makes ceramic elephants to sell to a shop or he hangs out, he hangs out with, you know, he meets a counterfeiter or he meets a, yeah, I I love that montage where he's going around looking for someone to give him 200 quid for the, for the scheme that we'll get into. But you know, he, he finds a dude who like leads the panhandlers. He finds a dude who forges documents. He, this, even the this panhandler woman. guy says, I will lend you some folks to panhandle on your behalf. You just have to manage them. And he's not interested. He yeah. He's like, that. no, I can't, I can't get the money fast enough. So yeah, you know, he, he's in it for a quick buck and yeah, there's the woman who uh, trades in nylons and cigarettes. 
<laughs> which I thought was funny too. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Every, everyone uh, kind of has their own working trade to them that they are willing to hone and they, you know, have clearly spent the time and, you know, that's how they're able to get a profit. And even people say to him, they're like, you know, do you know what 200 quid is? Do you know what, how much work and time I have to put in to kind of get that? And you just, you know, expect me to like cough that over to you and stuff <laughs> because he's trying to get a deal to do with this wrestler. Because if you've always been able to talk some mark into giving you 200 quid, it, it, there is no time accumulated. It's just as fast as someone handing it to you. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that, that's what he's looking for. He's, he's, not, he's not willing, like Mary, to go work at a club, you know, or, or tend bar, or even, you know, even if, in the, if he wants to do it in the criminal enterprise, he could work with the forger, you know? The forger would give him some yeah. money. <laughs> um. It's almost yeah, ironic because I think he he also has this feeling of uh, not wanting to have a boss in some way, like he's his own man. But this ends up, yeah. all these schemes end up being becoming him working for all of these people instead of just like one person. <laughs> so it, yes. it, it, I found that kind of funny too. And he never really realizes it because he's going from one scheme to the next. But it's just like, dude, all you're doing is just having a different boss every single day. For every scheme, there's a boss, someone that you have to. Uh, call to so it, it's it, that i find kind of ironic yeah and funny it, about it's like character. don't don't you want to work uh where like frantically evading capture and danger is not like a normal every <laughs> a weekly part of occurrence routine. yeah like, yeah like, like 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 instead of just running around sweating everywhere you just kind of you, you clock in <laughs> right exactly and and it seems to like eventually you have that scene where he uses the the wrestler psychology to uh, instigate the fight. And so it's kind of seeming like his understanding of people work out for him. But then once again, the his past uh, bullshit that he was doing makes it so that he can't, uh, like, like it's not going to work out for him because Phil, who is the... Um, one of the uh, the club managers is the one that like secretly signs off for the for the money for the event, and he's setting him up because he doesn't like him due to some of the past stuff that he's done to him. So it, it's all of this stuff where he finally does kind of come up with a scheme that might have worked out, but because of his past, that's what actually ruins him. Um, it just it, you know it all just catches up to him, I guess. Yeah, there's definitely a, a sense of tragedy to it. Is that you know he you know that you know he's clearly pitched. 30 of these schemes and they've all been bullshit. <laughs> right. And he finally has a scheme that actually has a little bit of merit to it, but there's no one who would believe him because, you know, he's fucked mm -hmm. over so many people and, and it's time to do it. And, and also once again, in order to set up this scheme, he has to, um, he has to kind of lie to people and he has <laughs> yeah. to, which again is not a solid foundation for the kind of business relationship that you're going to have with someone. So like, um, that the, includes the whole like key. ruining people too, like forging documents that later comes into play and things like that. Yep. So yeah, yeah, he, he has no thought to the, the cost of like, you know, the long the, term. How, <laughs> yeah. By like, you know, how something that, gets him money in the short term, you know, could actually ruin him or ruin other people um, in the long term. He has no thought towards it, which brings us to uh, the scheme that he actually does set up in this is revolved around 1950s yes. pro wrestling, which I think <laughs> yeah. is, is, which I think is a really hilarious um, kind of detail to it because you know, again, there, there's something, um, as Casey kind of mentioned that, you know, a lot of noirs, you know, it's kind of about, uh, PIs or it's about detectives or it's about gangsters in some ways. There's something so funny to me about how, um, they try to make this, 
kind of uh, shoddy and low key in kind of a way. Like it literally translates to the milieu of the film where, you know, it's not nice hotels that he goes to. It's like seedy Mm. nightclubs. It's not a cool sport. Like at the time, like boxing, you know, like something like the setup, I think came out around this time. And that's like, you know, the boxing is the key to that. It's very, um, you know, there's a very sort of pageant esque quality to the way that people would shoot boxing around this time. Um, Instead, it's like this pissing contest over the minute arguments over wrestling form is the subject of this film, which I think is just like such a perfect translation of how, um, you know, again, kind of minuscule this, uh, this crime film is on its, uh, you know, on the, on the kind of level it's working on. I like the differences between their, their kind of images and approaches too. Cause it it almost feels like the, uh, like I think it's, his name is the strangler, I guess is more of like the city wrestler or whatever. And this Greek guy, um, he comes off as like a guy that would be in like, he'd do the Rocky four montage where he's like lifting logs in the woods, like that kind of thing. That's just the vibes he gives. Um, but I, yeah, I I like their two contrasts that you have, like, I guess the, the one guy looks almost more, uh, slick, like sleek looking. And, and then the Greek guy is just this massive bear of a man. And, uh, their fight is unbelievable. in, In the, in the scene where we, where we meet them, where, um, where Harry is just at a wrestling match trying to pull more of his con because most of his day to day sort of commission that he makes is by getting people to go to um, this uh, the Silver Fox Club, which is run by Phil and uh, and, and Helen, his wife. And uh, I do like that scene in like the restaurant, for example, where he immediately he pays the cabbie for like a little bit of info on the guys he just dropped off. And he's like, yeah, so those guys are from Chicago and they're into like the fashion industry or whatever. And he immediately like pretends to be like a a big friend of someone they know. And, you know, and and he goes, are you guys going to like stay the whole night here? Like, this is like a piece of shit. Um and he says, I know a better place. You should go here. And he sends them to like the seedy nightclub. Like that's how he makes his money. <laughs> yeah. And he, and he, and he, he does this whole thing where like he, he drops a wallet and he, you know, he, he's like, is any of this wallet, like your guys's wallet as like a conversation starter. Either way, he's trying to pull that scheme at this wrestling match. And then he hears, you know, during this big sort of, uh, you know, this, the, the, you know, these, these guys are kind of like diving at themselves. Um, and there's, there's, there's something about the wrestling that really pisses off this famous Greek wrestler who is in the crowd. He starts shouting pigs at them and how it's all, you know, shameless, tasteless exhibitionism. It's just, it's just for the show. It's not for the actual form. None of these people are actually wrestling. They're just, you know, formlessly smacking each other and wearing shiny clothing. (laughs) Um, And it's very funny that like, you know, uh, immediately Harry goes, yeah, do you know what? I really care about Greco Roman traditions of the sport of wrestling. <laughs> yes. And his, his, the money signs in his eyes like light up instantly. And he makes sure that as Gregorius is leaving the venue, he's overheard demanding a refund for the exact same critiques that Gregorius had, <laughs> which immediately like charms him towards him and flatters him. <laughs> and, and, and critically, he's only interested when he hears some other fans nearby go, Hey, that's Gregorius. He used to be a big deal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, but, but Casey, you mentioned before we, uh, started recording that you, you had some knowledge about actual wrestling around this time. Is there something to this debate that they're having in this film? So there is, and it specifically and very critically involves the actor playing Gregorius. Oh, Um, cool. 
So the actor playing Gregorius, uh, this is his only film role, but he, he was a real pro wrestler. Uh, his name was Stanislaus Zabisco. Uh, Stanislaus Zabisco was huge in the early 1900s up to the 1920s Damn. as a traditional Greco-Roman wrestler. Uh, in the twilight years of his career, wrestling starts moving. And now, to be fair, it has always been a carny industry that has had fixing scandals and stuff. But up to a certain point in the 20s, it was very much considered like a legitimate, you know, uh, fight performance, just like boxing. Uh, so Zabisco was of the tradition of guys who were doing Greco-Roman and catch-as-catch-can style, where he was a legitimate fighter, and he would make people tap out and do these kind of things that were in a very old-school wrestling way. Uh, around this time, though, and the, around the time he starts retiring in the 20s, there is another performer... Uh, and his clique that start rising in prominence. And that performer's name was Ed the Strangler Lewis. Um, oh, so shit. They literally named him after him here then. <laughs> it, it seems that way. Which, and I was surprised because like, I went through all of the DVD extras. I went through like every reading material I could find. And people have not really connected these two things, which at least from what I could see. Uh, so uh, Ed the Strangler Lewis was a wrestler who... Uh, I believe wrestled 6,000 matches, lost 32, uh, you know, like some, many of some, which were real, some, uh, and we'll get into how, uh, he kind of introduces like more of the fixing angle that we know wrestling to be today. Mm. Uh, Right. He he was also the popularizer of the sleeper hold, which is why he's called the strangler. Um, but Ed Lewis concocted a scheme in the twenties because, He was so good that people were getting bored of seeing him. So he came up with a scheme and he found this six foot six football player uh, that they called Big Wayne Munn. And Big Wayne (laughs) Munn could not wrestle, but he had the look of a wrestler. He had the look. And like in that time, if you were a wrestler, you could actually wrestle. Like if you got into a fight, you could put people in holds. You could do the moves. You were a shooter. Uh, But Big Wayne Munn was not. However, he was tall, he was muscular, he was attractive, and so in him, uh, Ed Lewis kind of saw the future of wrestling. He wanted, <laughs> so, so Lewis booked himself to get badly beaten up by Wayne Munn in front of a crowd who had never seen him manhandled that way before, but unlike the rest of them, uh, Wayne Munn couldn't do any of the holds, he couldn't do anything. What he could do was the body slam. So... Wayne Munn in the match, uh, their big match, the first big match with Ed Lewis, he body slams him outside of the ring, which at the time was an illegal move. And uh, Lewis sees dollar signs and he goes into full carny mode. So like he's, he's, he pretends to be hospitalized. He, he's putting out like lawsuits <laughs> into the newspapers and he is booking himself to be like, all right, me and this Wayne Munn guy are going to have a massive rematch. Nobody in the world knows that this guy can't actually wrestle because he looks like a wrestler. But I know. So he starts sending him on this tour and he gets all the other bookers in town and on this idea that like, yeah, I know this guy is garbage, but look at him. You know, so (laughs) everybody kind of disagrees to take falls for the guy. All these legitimate wrestlers. Uh, At one point, uh, Stanislaus Zabisco, who, again, is nearing the end of his career, like he does one dive for him. But at some point. Before this huge rematch, which at the time was going to be one of the like biggest money making matches of all, you know, of, of all time up to that point, 
two, there, the story goes one of two ways. Either a rival booker got to Zabisco and offered him more money to do this, or, and I believe this given how much uh, this comes up in both this movie and in like Zabisco's conversations about these kind of things, it was Zabisco's pride. But right before the big rematch that was supposed to be a huge moneymaker for The Strangler and for Wayne Munn, uh, they have him wrestle Zabis- Wayne Munn wrestle Zabisco one more time, and rather than doing what he's told, Zabisco turns to Munn in front of the crowd and says, this time we wrestle for real, and demolishes Wayne Munn <laughs> in an embarrassing fashion and exposes oh the scam to the public. So, <laughs> Wow. Everything kind of blows up in the Strangler's face. Like, they, it's just, like, the scheme is exposed, and, like, there start to be the conversations of, like, whoa, is this all fake? Like, it starts as early as there, and Bill, you know, has decades to percolate until it becomes what we know what it is now. But I feel, especially in Zabisco's performance, that there is that argument he's having that, like, the because the other problem for Zabisco was, as time went on, his Greco-Roman style really wasn't as popular as this like ridiculous form where people are throwing each other out of the ring and doing body slams and things that aren't Throwing them off the hell right. in the cell. Exactly, know? yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, of course, hilariously, if you follow wrestling today, like every wild, generation... Yeah. And also, every generation is still having this argument that the new generation is killing the business and it won't be around <laughs> anymore. Right. Like, it's never gone away. It's always been this. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, Dassin in interviews said that the reason he casts, uh, Stanislaw Sabisco as Gregorius is because he remembered an image of him on a poster from the twenties when he was a kid. And he was like, Oh, well let's, I remember this guy being a champion. Let's find him. And he was told he was dead, but instead he finds out that he's this, uh, he's this chicken farmer out in New Jersey. That's just been quietly living into his fifties. And he Incredible. said, like, he said, like, oh, he was this beautiful man that spoke 12 languages and he was so interested in everything. And like Dassin would invite the crews to go see experimental theater after the show. And the only person that ever took him up on it was Zabisco. He would go to all these like arts and things with him. So I, <laughs> I truly believe at some point in this process, uh, Zabisco like got to him and was able to tell him all these stories of his life. And so I, I think that think that Dassin shows Gregorius with this real respect and reverence as being like oh, this yeah. man of integrity and spirituality um, mm-hmm. that I don't necessarily think would have come through if it wasn't Stanislaw Zabisco. Like it's yeah. Well, and, and, totally. and, and that's, what's so interesting. I think ultimately is that like, this is a case where Harry has found like the real deal. He's found a guy who actually does have some kind of integrity. He has some knowledge about the thing that he's uh, upset about. And Harry's plan is just, what if I give this guy money and back him to start his own wrestling, you know, organization and to compete with the other one. And also the genius of it is that he's safe to do that because uh, the guy who is running the really shitty sort of shameless uh, exhibitionist version of wrestling that Gregorius is upset with is Gregorius's son. 
So Harry has found like the perfect maneuver. He's like, I can start a competitive wrestling organization with this guy because this guy, he actually knows his shit. He actually would train all the fighters. He could run it. I don't need to actually have any skill or knowledge in any of this. I just need to, you know, find the money to front it. And any time that they question me, I can just prop his dad in front of him and be like, no, look, he's going to protect me. Like those scenes where yeah, the, where yeah. the father starts to just stand up for Harry, and <laughs> Harry uses it as like a, a shield, essentially. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and also Gregorius like very clearly believes that he's a you know that that he's a man who just believes truly. Yeah, yeah, and, and he's just like you don't know this guy like I do. Yes, yes, Mis- <laughs> misguided, but he is the only one that believes in Harry in this entire movie. Yeah, no, but I, I do think that that context is really important because, you know, you know, mm-hmm. Gregarious, uh, he really does have something in this whole, you know, I'm going to return wrestling to, you know, what it actually is. And we're going to put on like, you know, a, a real fight that that people are going to watch. It's not going to be this this dude who just puts on a shiny costume and just fakes it the entire time for the spectacle of it. You know, we're going to put on like, you know, sort of real wrestling and Harry sees that as an opportunity for investment. But the issue also is he can't find anyone to give him money to actually invest in it. He needs to have 400 quid to start this business up. He goes to Phil, the guy who he works on commission to send people to his club, and Phil literally maniacally laughs in his face for like five minutes, which I thought was a <laughs> hilarious scene. But he literally can't stop laughing to say no because he's so. It's the idea to him is so funny <laughs> that he would back him, him on one of his schemes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and something I think is remarkable about that scene. You're right. It's it's very funny to watch uh, Phil Narcissus laugh, but also like. It's so interesting as kind of a metronome to that scene that we see Phil's wife, uh, Mrs. Nasiris, go from like telling uh, Widmark to get out to like suddenly seeing her own position in the scheme while he's still too busy laughing to notice what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because 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 Helen, it's worth noting her relationship with Phil is that you know they are married, but basically only like in the image of being married. Yes, yeah. exactly. He she, wants she, it to be more. Yeah. And, and clearly something has like gone wrong between them. You know, he, you know, he, he's kind of, uh, abusive towards her because she won't, you know, actually, you know, be, uh, you know, in, in love with him in the way that he wants her to be and everything like this. And she, she very clearly has worked her way up from, you know, she used to be in sort of Mary's position where she was someone who just worked the club. And so I do like that this film um, really kind of gives you so many different agendas that people have. And, you know, it kind of deals in the dramatic irony of we, the audience kind of see these agendas, but the other characters aren't completely aware of them. Yeah. Like Phil does a lot of his own plotting. Um, you know, there's, there's that sort of like the strangler. <laughs> yes. Phil has Helen a lot of scenes where plotting. it kind of ends where he's just like, it does a little scowl and like the <laughs> darkness. Yeah. The shadow goes over his face. Yeah. It's great. He's just looming in the background while he's listening to Helen or something. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah. I, I love the part where, um, cause, cause Helen, uh, while he's maniacally laughing gives actually gives, um, Harry an out. Uh, that he doesn't realize by saying that, you know, he won't give you the 400 quid, but if you bring us 200 quid, he'll match you, you know, that kind of thing. And Harry is immediately very upset and flustered by that because he can't find it. And, you know, uh, we mentioned earlier the montage of him going to the foragers and going to the panhandlers and being like, please, someone front me just 200. I only need 200. And they've all fronted him before. Like everyone. Yeah. 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 
and they're all like no fucking way and uh i do love the way that you know again he he's he's always grinning and you know putting on a big sort of show for those people and then when when he runs into helen he's like you know she he's like so upset with her he's so cold to her and like calling her like terrible names and he's you know uh he's like how dare you sell me down the river on like this particular plan i just needed the 200 quid and helen is you know despite being called every name in the book is the one to give him the 200 quid which she gets by selling uh, a fur coat that phil tried to give to her which is very upsetting uh to him and very important but uh but i love how he uh, harry immediately flips he's like helen you're a dame and you won't regret this you know <laughs> immediately he's just like you're helen you're the best you know yeah. i sorry i sorry i absolutely hated your guts and wanted to stomp on you like literally 30 seconds ago <laughs> um <laughs> Also, but, like, I, I love okay. the I love the scene immediately after where as soon as that 200 shows up, Phil immediately checks the closet to see that the coat is gone and goes, OK, yes. like he's already on to the scheme because there's no way he could have done it that fast. Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at, because I think J- Jamie was mentioning that Phil is like kind of very obvious in some of his planning. But it's so funny watching him in the same room as <laughs> Harry is handing him the 200 quid and forcing him to, you know, uh, uh, on on the deal that he agreed to to match him. And Phil like already knows that, you know, Helen has betrayed him and given him the money and done all of this. And also there's a, a, a bit where. Um, there, there is word of this Fabian promotions underway, a new wrestling company getting started. And, uh, Crisco, who is the son of Gregorius and, you know, the businessman who's running, you know, basically controlling all of, uh, London's wrestling. He sends out a couple of men after him. And I, I, it's Phil, I think who answers the door and they're just like, yeah, if if Harry starts up, you know, anything like this, like we're, you know, they don't say it, but they're very threatening. They're very like, we're going to fucking take him down. I hope you know that. Yeah. Um, and they hand him his business card and everything. And Phil is like, yeah, don't worry. He's not starting up that business. Like he was a, a pro such and such last week. He'll next week. He'll be <laughs> something else. You know, he's his schemes are changing. But Phil, that gesture of him ripping up that business card while hand ending uh harry the money uh to match the deal is so ominous because he's basically like i'm letting him start up his pro wrestling company even though i have the knowledge that if he does these guys are probably gonna break his legs or something (laughs) yeah and it leads to like there's never a moment where you can kind of feel a sense of relief like even when you're watching him feel a little happier that his scheme is kind of on the up and up you know that phil's in the background just going to ruin it in 30 minutes So there's like never it's just so tense the entire time because of that, because they let you in on some of the things that maybe another movie wouldn't necessarily. Yeah, there's so much detail to the kind of warring parties and also sadness to it on the periphery as well, because like that scene coincides with him also abandoning Mary at work. Mm-hmm. And her like yep. talking herself into all the different excuses for why Harry would like forget about her, even though she's like sitting there. The only other person there is Phil, who is we also know to be incredibly lonely. Well, <laughs> yeah. th- that scene, by the way, has such beautiful framing because there's yes. there's Phil confined in like the sharp windows of his office that are counter crossing, and then there's Mary on the other side of the screen that is just alone on this completely empty dance floor. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just a beautifully shot thing that gives you exactly where their positions in the story are in relation to the people. They want to be there for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, both of them are being sort of uh, schemed around by people who, you know, couldn't, you know, actually care less about them as people. Um, and, and it's very, you know, crazy to have Mary sort of empathize with with Phil, because we also know Phil to be, you know, have his own sort of nefarious agenda as well, which gets really gets into some really dark places um, <laughs> and some really fatalistic places as well. Yes. Um, <laughs> now that uh now that um, uh, Fabian has his money, though, I love that the very first thing he does is blow it on a huge sign. Yes. <laughs> Fabian promotions. A huge <laughs> sign. <laughs> and in the middle of the scene, he's he's delivered a package that just has a huge plaque that is being carried on the back of like the mythological figure of Atlas for some reason. Like, yes. <laughs> he, he is so enamored with just the like the decorations of the position again, instead of right. like the actual operation because, of the data. Yeah. Because it's so, it's so it, it's the, it's the surface of legitimacy. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I am successful. This business has my name on it. Uh, Phil, for some reason said, make him a silent partner very ominously. I don't know why he said to do that, but I'm happy to have my name on the business uh, <laughs> completely solo. Um, I love the part where he lovingly is stroking his uh, managing director, like desk title piece that he got. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Christo comes in and like threatens him now that he's starting up this own, you know, his, his own club, but he immediately very cynically weaponizes his dad right in front of him. He's like, I'm not the one only one starting this company. Look who else is here. And he's like, it, it, it really, you know, describes his relationships with people that like, you know, he just, you know, he doesn't really talk to Gregorius actually running the place. It's just when he's just like, yeah, Gregorius need, I need him to counter his son's goons. So what if I drag him by the arms and I'm like, look, I'm, you know, I'm starting up a business with this guy. And the son is being like, he will swindle you. He will cheat you. He will break your heart is what the (laughs) son is like saying to him, which we know is that we, we know to be true. We know that he's only cynically invested in all of this. Um, and, and we know it instantly because the very first scheme uh, Fabian has now that he has this promotion is to immediately turn to the Strangler's manager and go, yeah, we should put your guy who Gregorius despises more than anyone else in wrestling up against yes. his young protege who he's trying to teach the legitimate Greco-Roman arts of wrestling. Yes. <laughs> Which is like such a betrayal of everything that he has claimed to, you know, Gregorius to be someone to to be what he supports. He's like, no, I'll betray it in a heartbeat if it means that I will actually have this thing. I will take all the integrity out of this thing, Um, which is, yeah, it's a it's a very brutal um, realization, um, especially. And also, you know, again, he's very skilled at what he does. Uh, So there, there's something very interesting about how he's able to pull that off. Um, because there's, there's this whole aspect to it where he, you know, he needs to get the strangler really upset. And I love the way that we kind of follow him. So there's, there's him at the bar with his, with uh, the manager of the strangler. And then he leads him over to the table and he just says like, follow my lead. He's like, we're going to do something crazy. He's like, I know Gregorius would never agree to fight the strangler. We're going to make this happen. And he just starts talking 
open shit about the strangler at the table, like right beside him. And as soon as he stands up and gets angry, he's like, oh, was the strangler there the entire time? I didn't even see him. Anyway, Gregorius thinks that you're a piece of shit and And that he could kick your ass. Yeah. (laughs) Just so And so the strangler, the strangler runs there in a heat and starts a fight. And, um, you know, so between Gregorius and the Strangler all yelling at each other about who has the better, you know, wrestling form and, you know, all of this. Harry goes, you know, Gregorius, don't you kind of want to fight him to prove him wrong? Right. And, you know, what if we sold a show where you did that? And he, so watching him just very openly manipulate this very sweet, honest man into doing the thing that, you know, breaks his integrity, but convincing him that he wants to do it. Yeah, um, exactly. Out of out of out of anger and out of kind of showmanship and everything like that. And and that is really where Harry lives. And like that's, you know, he's he's very skilled at getting people to kind of believe that the thing he wants them to do is what they actually want to do. Yeah. But in order to do that, he's you know, he, he's he's ruining. He's destroying people. He's destroying himself in ways. I love the line that the son gets when he first, you know, tells him that, you know, where this is going to lead and that Harry is going to betray him. He says, you're very sharp, Mr. Fabian. You've done a very sharp thing, maybe even sharp enough to cut your throat. <laughs> <laughs> which is like just a, you know, a very good piece of like noir pulp writing, obviously, but also, it, you know, it, it speaks to exactly what it is that he's doing, you know, that, yeah. you know, he, he's, he's acting very clever. He's, he's performing these very sharp actions that are achieving the goals that he wants. But, you know, he's, you know, at the same time, he's setting fucking uh, time bombs everywhere he goes <laughs> while he does it. Yep. And then, I mean, it leads into one of the, like best physical fights that I've seen in this, in this context. Yeah. Like, we should talk and it's about so that. long. <laughs> like I couldn't believe how, how just it, it just kept going. And there, and there's like an insane amount of, of wrestling variations and moves and, and the camera really locks on. They don't do a lot of cutaways. So it really feels like these guys are actually fighting. And I, and, and to be honest, since they were both experienced, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, a take here and there they were actually hitting each other and really doing those slams so um Uh, yeah it's it's great i did want to give a quick shout out to to the other wrestler uh playing the strangler that's uh mike mizerki uh Mm. he he was also a pro wrestler uh fairly still active at this point as a wrestler while he was filming this movie um he got he gained a lot of hollywood experience as well he was a uh he was a villain in the original dick tracy uh, cool. as split right. face. Uh, he was also, uh, a gangster in, um, some like it hot. He, he's got a lot of, uh, roles around this time, but, uh, he, he was himself a pro wrestler and he did, uh, choreograph the wrestling in this scene. Oh, um, awesome. And I, I really enjoy this too, because as you said, like it is such an intense battle and it's a real contrast of styles because mm-hmm. yeah, they, they really emphasize that because, Gregorius is still doing these traditional moves. Like he's, he's going for the bear hug. He's going for holds. And the strangler is like kidney punching. And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) like he is just being like a brute. He's doing the kind of brawling that people who go to that more circus style want to see. But like he legitimately looks like he's out to kill someone. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, and I I like too that you know again it's these two very sweaty giant men just like pounding each other like meat sacks, just like <laughs> yeah. breathlessly throwing each other. There's no music to it. It's really just all the beating and grappling. It's very ugly and brutal. And, um, and critically, it does not happen in front of an audience. Like 
right. is at yes, the contract right. signing in an empty gym. Very that, personal. <laughs> yeah, he has set up, the uh, Fabian uh, has set up this house of cards, and it's collapsing before there's anywhere to profit from it. <laughs> right. Yeah, which is which is really like brutal um, kind of experience, especially from all the things that we've seen him do to like set this up. Right. Like he's like, I've got the perfect scheme. I've you know, I've I've got this pro wrestler. I've got his his son, who was the one person who could financially like threaten me. Can't touch him because he would also be hurting his own father. You know, he's got all of these things really properly set up. Phil, though, I think is at the last minute is the one who kind of betrays him. And says that he's not giving him the 200 quid to actually put on, even though he's got everything set up. He says, instead of giving you the sharp, the sharp edge of the knife. God, exactly what he, what a line. And, um, he, he also says, um, you know, you, you can't put, you know, I think he says like, you've got it, you've got it all. Like you've, you know, you've got a, a sure ticket to success here. I believe you, but you can't put that fight on because you don't have the money and no man in London will give you a shilling. You um, have you've everything, but you're a dead man. Yeah. A dead man, Harry Fabian. That's so good. And meanwhile, like the, he smashes like the symbol as he like runs out into the night and gets almost hit by a car, which is when he, um, you know, and which is really scary idea, obviously, that he's played all of his car, his cards right. And he's like an inch away from the finish line. But none of it matters because his methods to get there have made him the enemy of these very dangerous people. And he's yeah. sealed his own death certificate by just upsetting Phil. Um, and then he tries to, like, fool Mary by calling her to get out of her flat so he can steal from her. And that's such a heartbreaking moment when, you know, she, doesn't even she finds out. He just like rummages through and basically ignores her, pushes her to the side. Like there's just there's yeah. There's he shoves no her and there. breaks her heart. It's it's literally we're watching the opening scene again, but this time you know he's you not know, even he, trying. He is <laughs> he's literally stealing from her. He's not actually yeah. you know having any kind of conversation about it. And you know uh, and it's frantic too. Like he's not even doing a scheming thing. He's just in a frantic desperation now. Um, yeah and yeah and also. Uh, it's a, it's the very opposite of his sensational maneuvering that we were seeing earlier. He's literally exactly. just shoving this woman and literally stealing out of her bag. And that desperation comes from the fact that uh, that the wrestler dies after that fight. The the older man, um, and they have that moment with uh, Crisco. Uh, is that his name, Crisco, or is it Cristo? Yeah, well, I actually think he steals the money before that because he was stealing the oh, money to it? actually put it on gotcha. the contract to put on the show. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah right. to get the contract signed. But then, you know, it turns out that he stole that shit for nothing because he runs there. He runs there with the money that he just abused, like the only person who actually cares about him to get. And by the time he gets there, and what's so funny too is that he's caused this because the re- the only reason these two are fighting at all is because they fucking hate each other because he set that up. He made that happen. Um, yeah, he and, has yeah, wound he, them up and kept them in a room together where Strangler is drinking and Gregorius <laughs> is already has this pure contempt for that style of wrestling and like what he sees as the degradation of his art. But he has put them there and kept them there for long enough for it to yeah. boil over. He, he literally stoked the personal feud for his own business reasons. And then that personal feud that he stoked actually ends up destroying the business <laughs> before <laughs> it even has a chance to get started. They literally Gregorius like beats him. But it, in order to beat him, he basically, you know, exhausts himself so much that, that he dies. He's an old man. Um, and yeah, but, but, th- he, that, but he dies having won his match, which to him. Yeah, he dies a prideful death in his eyes. At the very least. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, but the, the bit where the son sits him down in the chair and he says it's cold, can you close the window? And the window is like fully clothed and oh, closed yeah. and stuff like that. And he fakes God closing damn. it, like just to give his dad yeah. a kind of visual of like he's not delirious and dying right now. Um, I, yeah. I do, it's sad of course, but I do like that they, that his one of his last lines I believe is I had a good life to his son. And yep. it's just crazy too, cause we're watching like, uh, I mean, he's, I guess he's a wrestling promoter, but he's also essentially like a gangster. So <laughs> watching yeah. this like sad moment between the gangster and, and an old wrestling father, uh, was not what I expected from this, this movie, but it was, yeah, it was really good. I liked that. And then that's kind of no, yeah. uh, Crisco's motivation that's like- to get the entire fucking city after him. So. Yeah, well, because that it, it's so funny that like that is more of an emotional relationship <laughs> right. than Harry probably actually has. Yes. And like that's such a cutting observation by the film that like there's something so real between this, you know, this this guy and his his father who he just weaponized and killed. And yeah, he flees immediately because the father was not just his business, but it was his protection guarantee. So <laughs> Christo is like, yeah, I don't know. We're start, we're starting a fucking manhunt like right now. And, and every. Hustler even even the, the strangler gets up and participates in the manhunt, having been the <laughs> guy who he died, who uh, Gregorius died fighting because he realizes, oh, if I'm the one that kills him, no one is going. No, if I'm the one who kills Fabian, no one is going to blame me. Like, yep. they, they won't say I did anything wrong to Gregorius. It's it's this guy now, and I'm going to prove it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love too the the way immediately like every hustler in the city sees the dollar signs to betray the man that they just you know they find casually annoying. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> throughout the rest of and the film, because he has no like, friends, he has no real friends. Yeah, and you can't help but feel like Harry would have done the exact same given. Any like if if just a random other person was going through his scenario, y- you know that he'd take the thousand dollars to rat the guy. He would have done it for less. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Would have done it for two hundred. And, and and the way that that message from Christo is carried into the streets in oh, that long shot behind the dude's head driving around London is oh so God. sick. It's so it's so cool. Yeah, yeah, like that. That's that's the great use of like the actual sort of like you know London location shooting that they do. Like, there's lots yeah. of great clubs and bars and streets and restaurants and you know this is this is they, he really tried to get onto the level where Swindler would really live and you would see the places that he would um, in, in interact with, which is like especially true of when you know, uh, Fabian basically like the third man style finds himself surrounded and betrayed by like the gutter that he so skillfully navigated. Like he's, he's running through these rundown buildings and these yeah. broken stones and he's still trying to play the cops and the, and the crooks like equally. And everyone is, you know, out and looking for him. But all of those places that he previously saw as like his place of business or his place of work, the place he was skilled at. Now he's watching it literally like close in around him. Like that big finale we talked about when we did the third man last year where he has to literally go into the subterranean uh, part of it. You know, the underworld that he helped kind of create in a way. Yeah, he's he, and he's, yeah. he's even running a bit like he does in the beginning, but this time the stakes are too high. It's not a thing people are just going to shrug off. You have crossed the wrong person finally, mm-hmm. and now there you can't just comfortably go to the next thing. It's never going to be better. 
Yeah, and at least like before it was, you know, a couple people after you. Now you have the entire district just trying to kill you, every single person you see around the corner. I also love that one moment he gets where uh, he's he's like cornered between a couple guys and a and a couple people in a car, and then a cop comes up and he starts to try like try to be like, oh, these these gentlemen need uh, directions, and distracts them and gets away. So I do like they also incorporate some of his. Uh, his uh, intelligence in, in the escape a little bit as well, even though, you know, it doesn't end up working out very well. I also love no. that scene where he visits uh, his panhandler friend and stays in his house for a little while. And like, right. just reading the body language of the panhandler guy, he realizes, Oh, you're in for the money too. Like yeah. it, <laughs> it plays yeah. out so tensely. And so, and he, I mean the, the panhandler guy almost looks like a, uh, LA noir character. If you remember the rock star game, like oh, yes. his face goes to the whole range of expressions. As he tries <laughs> yeah. to lie. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doubting you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, he's, he's running all through the, the sort of back streets of London as everything's sort of collapsing around him, not just his business, but his, his entire life. And, um, Helen is also trying to leave Phil at this point in the film, but Phil is like, you know, there's no future with Fabian. Like I've set it up, but not realizing that Helen was not leaving him, um, to be with Harry, which is why Phil has sort of like, you know, helped his downfall. Yeah. Um, he thought that it was like a, you know, a sort of like a, a romantic relationship that they had, but Helen actually just wanted to leave um, Phil and start her own club. But in order to do that, she needed a license. And so Harry helped get her a license, but Harry paid a forger to forge the license rather than getting her like an actual one. And that's so brutal when she finally opens her club and she's like, I, I've, I've escaped the clutches of Phil. Yep. <laughs> And then uh, she puts like a glass down on the license and it just immediately like the ink starts bleeding off of it and they go, this is not right. Like you, this is, you know, (laughs) he basically ruined her life and her leaving Phil causes Phil to kill himself. Yeah. And then she goes (laughs) back to Phil in desperation in order to find the body. And it's just like, oh my God, what a clusterfuck that Harry's made here. Yeah, and Phil didn't leave the the club to her. Uh, Phil right. left it to like Molly, like the crazy old woman who helped run hammered. the place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, oh, so man. like, like Harry has like basically, you know, screwed everything. You know, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say Phil was like this really great dude or anything, no, but Phil at no. the very least was someone who employed him. Yes. Um, and Helen was someone who didn't deserve what she got. And, and it's very it's very bleak that, you know, in his wake, he's just like, you know, you have Phil who's committed suicide and uh, Helen, who is just like completely financially ruined. Even and though legally the only thing that she and legally ruined, you know, even yeah. though all she was looking for was like autonomy away from Phil. And yeah, he just basically screwed them all. And he's he's having flashbacks to the conversations that he's had where, you know, uh, Phil is, you know, called said that he was, you know, he was a dead man. And Mary said, you're, you're killing me and you're killing yourself. And he's, you know, experiencing the weight of all of the things that, that have brought him here and, you know, noticing, you know, realizing, I think that, you know, he is, you know, primarily the cause of, of what (laughs) has happened to him, even though, you know, he, he, he did get close. 
he yeah. he was one contract signing away where, where the two wrestlers didn't uh kill each other before showtime <laughs> yeah so close yeah because at that one point uh, he gets to that just like that boat dock eventually um and mm-hmm. he's not even, he's done with running like he's just cut, I think he even has a line where he's just like I just need a place to sit down because <laughs> I am absolutely fucking exhausted. Yeah, Mary said it at the beginning he can't run forever. Yeah, yeah, and I love too that um because it because it leads into the the final shot of the film. But when he he goes into that boathouse and the and the old lady like starts to lights a cigarette and they smoke together or whatever. Um, there's there's this great shot of inside the boat and you can see the bridge just in the background. And mm-hmm. I just like how, and, and we'll get to it, but how it leads kind of to the connection of the very last uh, shot of the film, which is just very dark and ominous. Um, it's yeah, also yeah. very similar to the boat that uh, Widmark lives in on Pickup on South Street. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're true. right. Yeah, very true. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that, that 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 stuff's great, and and this finale where he's just you know he's finally stopped running to take a rest for one moment. You just get these close-ups on his bruised, sweaty face as he's kind of realized what he's done. The expression of of terror and doom as these quiet footsteps start approaching, and he realizes you know that everything has fallen apart, and he was so close, and you know he had Mary, this woman who actually loved him, but you know yeah. the things that he did to her, and Mary even still finds him and tries to help him get out of town by giving him money and saying you know you need to you know get out of here and yeah what a sad um, like uh i I would say like character moment for him too because he he basically says like well just let them know where i am and then you can take the money and live a and live a better life and he's it's just so sad because even at this point when mary's like leave because i care about you not because i want money not because of anything but because i care about (laughs) you he's still like yeah but wouldn't you like that thousand quid like, isn't that yeah. important? It's like, she's like, no, you fucking idiot. I want you to live on. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so frustrating that even at the end, he, he really doesn't have like a clear moment in that regard. He well, can't, and, he can't and, see anything except in those terms that he has set for himself. Like, it's, right. Yeah. She has offered him. Yes. Once again, I am offering you the comfort of a better life. Let's just run <laughs> off and be honest. No. He can't do that. He can't do it. And I love that really brutal line he says to her, which is don't be kind to me. Yeah. 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 Like I really don't. Yeah. Well, the, the, it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he, he almost wants her to be as ruthless as him right. so that he can't like, you know, he, so he, that he doesn't feel as bad about it. He doesn't want her to, you know, actually be kind and to actually be honest. And, you know, she's just like, no, 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 you need to be a ruthless hustler like me too. So that this has, you know, have been of some value to anyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you oh, weaponizing man. his own death as a con to make her money. And he's like, this is my true foolproof idea. Yeah, and he, <laughs> he doesn't even let her have it. Like, he still insists because he runs out, starts screaming like, like, oh, you're the rat. You did this to me, whatever, just to make you it Judas. like she yeah. actually did. It's like he just, yeah, to the, to the bitter end. He, he never, yeah, he died. He, he, he dies with one last performance. Yeah, um, truly. Yeah. That, that, that Mary betrayed him so that she'll hopefully get paid. And then he runs straight into the strangler's grip right into the, you know, the, the shot of him running like into the camera and the hand just oh, appearing yeah. from like underneath the lens Oof. and going right into his neck and then tossing his body in the river as Christo watches. So um, cold. And I love, I, yeah, that shot where you can, 
see the toss in the foreground and then Christo is in the background on the bridge watching it, like having just like made that happen. And then he just throws his cigarette into the water, right where you would assume his body is floating. Like just the, the added disrespect. Yeah. It's, it's a, what an, what an ending, very bleak. And I, I wanted to bring up because we've mentioned all these scenes. One of the beautiful things about that third act is that for almost everybody but Mary, there is a moment in each of their faces where it seems to them like things are coming together and then it all falls apart. Uh, like yeah. w- when Widmark comes to get the money from Phil for the last time, there is this really fantastic bit of physical acting from uh, Widmark where he leaps over the banister staircase and like lands yeah. and like sort of jaunts in and then like seconds later realizes he's not getting the money and you see the bar kind of close in around him. Um, yeah. There's that bit where Gregorius thinks he has won the match and he has his pride, but then he dies. Uh, Phil, Phil, when he realizes that Fabian is dying, has this like moment of triumph and smirking because he thinks like, okay, well, he, now that my he, wife yeah, can't he, go with him. He, he lights up that cigar and he's like, right. nice, yeah, <laughs> I've <right>. done it. <laughs> and then realizes she's leaving anyway. Uh, you know, with 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 uh, Helen, she she's running her bar. She would have gotten away with the counterfeit scheme if she didn't have that moment of boasting where the cop that was leaving anyway, she invites him to have the drink that yep. smears yep. The, <laughs> the ink. And even the strangler in the end who thinks that he is murdering Fabian to get away with murder uh, <laughs> ends up being arrested anyway in plain view of the cops. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Everyone oh thinks God. they're getting what they want and no one gets anything. Yep. Yeah, it's so honestly like it's it's such a a brutally like nihilistic depiction of, you know, this very desperate and destructive wave of just like self-interest, you yeah. know, self-interest above all else. People people tricking each other into getting a leg up on others at the cost of, you know, uh, whatever, uh, you know, without even realizing, you know, um, what it is. Um and yeah, and it's it's not just Widmark, which is what's interesting, because you know, you know, Widmark, you know, in in playing Harry, he's he's very sweaty and unhinged and grinning like a freak, and he's <laughs> in a constant state of spinning plates and panic decision making. But like again, he's not the only you know person who has an agenda. Everyone here is trying to uh, survive, which is kind of what reminded me a little bit of um, Pick Up on South Street. Yeah, where it's like you know, ev- everyone ca- kind of has a scheme going. Some people are just operating on on different levels, and the only one that's um, not expecting anything of him is the woman that he can't settle down with. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really uh, bleak stuff. But we should pivot towards reductive rating around here on on night uh, in the city, which for me is a a very very high four. Yeah. Um. This is um. Absolute. I mean, you know, the noir. The noir is uh, a, a type of film that is known for this specifically. But even despite being known for it, this is one of the sweatiest, most desperate, and like panicked noirs <laughs> yeah, I've ever I, I've ever seen. That's like very, very depressing. This is a movie that opens with a man frantically evading debt and ends with his corpse being tossed in the river, <laughs> having caused the death of a nice old man. Um, the death of a nightclub owner who gave him work when he needed it, the financial ruin of an abused woman who was just as desperate for as escape as uh, he was and the complete emotional turmoil of like the only person who actually cared about him. Um, It's, it's brutal. And I think it is like uh, a, 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 
you know, a near perfect depiction of, you know, a, a kind of cinema that I really appreciate, which I'm going to dub a scumbag failure cinema. <laughs> um, like it. Cause he, yeah, he just, you know, ev- everything that he tries to do goes completely wrong. Um, and he's not cool or handsome like other noir heroes are. He's really just this Weasley loser <laughs> yeah. who d- destroys everything around him. Um, and it's crazy that on, on some level, too, you still, you know, you empathize with a lot of these characters and, you know, what what they've done to put themselves here. And, yeah, uh, I, I I think that this is really, really um, amazing. And it, I just really need to check out more of Jules Dassin. I yeah. Think. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm going to give it a high four as well. I mean, the uh, I, I love the kind of, um, uh, he's kind of charismatic and confident in the beginning, and then as it goes, the desperation and frantic qualities of his character just come out more and more until he's literally tossed into a river, lifeless. So it, it's, uh, <laughs> this movie is nonstop. It just, it, it, like, the, the pacing is truly unbelievable. There's never really a scene when he's, he's not scheming or somebody else is secretly scheming in the background to go against Harry. Uh, and it, it's just, it, it's endlessly entertaining. And, uh, yeah, as I think the, the, the ending is quite justified. It seems as if these, these characters are very doomed, um, especially as as the film goes on, it just seems as if the uh, all the all the self interest really just leads them to their demise uh, at the end of the day. So it's it's something that feels very constricting as the film goes. It's just it, it had that that same quality as um, what was the one we just the Long Good Friday, where I didn't realize it as much with that one, but by the end, it just felt felt like it was inevitable to be as doomed as it is. Um, so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, th- th- this was great. Uh, f- high four out of five. I'm looking forward to revisiting this one. Hell yeah, for you, Casey. I, I agree. High four. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating movie. Uh, Widmark gives a performance for the ages. Uh, I really, really love the attention to detail as far as shooting the London city streets, especially uh, toward mm. the end where we see a lot of these uh, sort of post-World War II bo- buildings that still have bomb damage. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it's beautifully shot, uh, incredibly tense throughout. The The energy is frantic. Uh, and uh, I just want to give uh, kudos to a movie from the 1950s recognizing what all wrestling fans know, which is that the most fascinating characters in wrestling are often the scumbag managers and bookers <laughs> behind the scenes. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fantastic movie. Fantastic uh, noir and one of the best wrestling films that's ever going to be made. <laughs> yeah, the fact that this is about wrestling, I feel like, should not be um, uh, understated. Like, it's so yeah. crazy that there is, a, you know, that there, again, that, you know, we're watching something that has, you know, all of the fatalism and brutality of something like the Maltese Falcon. But, like, it's literally about a guy just trying to, like, uh, scheme uh, a small-time wrestling organization. <laughs> yeah, like, how many- Like, that's such a... That, that, and how many noirs have a, a full-fledged, just sweaty, really well-shot wrestling match? Like it's just like yeah, a fight, something a you never fight see. Like that in there. Yeah, it was unreal. Who 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 needs a gunfight? Just put two giant men like slapping <laughs> yes. each other around. <laughs> All of the best wrestlers are con artists. Yes. 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 Oh, and oh, and as we're as we're ending it up here, one last line that I wrote down in the quotes that I forgot to to mention: uh, "You had brain ambition." You worked harder than any other man, but the 
but the wrong things, always the wrong things, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I think is uh, definitely sums up the, the feeling you get to by the end of the film. You're like, God damn. Yeah. hundred percent. Really yeah, that'll wrap it up for uh, night in the city. We're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about the sweet smell of success. Why you put your hands on my sister? I didn't do anything! Stop! All right, we are back, and we are talking Sweet Smell of Success, the 1957 American film noir drama film directed by one Alexander McKendrick. And uh, starring, quite famously, uh, Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis as J.J. Hunsecker and Sidney Falco, a, uh, a New York City newspaper uh, writer who um, is very uh, unscrupulous uh, <laughs> with, with, his, with his ethics and holds considerable sway over, um, you know, a kind of public opinion, I guess you would say, uh, in, yeah. in, in his column that he writes. It, watching this, it always makes me go back and wonder at a time when individual writers had that much power. <laughs> I know, yeah. I think people are a lot more skeptical um, of, of, of writing now and blogging and things of this nature. So it's very funny going back and watching, you know, like a, like a Broadway columnist being treated like a fucking rock star like he <laughs> right. was in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and, but and this is a... A very famous noir uh, for, you know, uh, very, uh, very obvious reasons. This is like one of the most popular, one of the most highest rated, even though it wasn't at its time, which I'm sure mm-hmm. most of you <laughs> are probably familiar with on this show. I feel like I say that every single time. It's also yeah, true the, of uh, almost all of the noir classics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Box office true. bomb. Audiences didn't like it. Um, they, but it has since become like one of the most acclaimed and well-known of its genre. A lot of these darker ones didn't get popular until they kind of did like that. Uh, I guess, I guess people looked back on them in like more of the seventies, I think it was. And people started to respect what they were doing a little more. That yeah. True? And, and, and the, the, sixties too, when, um, okay. um, especially when, um, you know, film criticism kind of took a bit of a turn there with, uh, with with the French, okay, <laughs> <laughs> with 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 the Truffauts and everyone who were kind of like you know you know they were they were reclaiming old Hollywood film you know right. uh, people who were doing workman like uh, film but you know deserved credit for the amount of craft they were putting in so they were doing it with westerns as well but yeah absolutely they were looking back at some noirs that maybe weren't uh, didn't have the best reputation. Um, but should have, well, uh, definitely. for, for, for obvious reasons. And also too, uh, with this film, actually it's worth noting, uh, it actually was pretty critically successful oh, okay. <laughs> even when it, even when it came out, it just, it didn't do too well with audiences because, uh, it, it had a very famous, <laughs> uh, I think it's very well known now, you know, that this is a very talky, very grim film that's appreciated yeah. now, but, uh, it had a very famous preview screening that just tanked oh. <laughs> that they could feel the audience recoiling at how ugly it was. And so many people were there because they were fans of Tony Curtis or Burt Lancaster. And, and they were just as unable should, in to way, get into, which I find funny. Like, it's like, you kind of should recoil at these, uh, these horrible characters, but I guess that's the point. <laughs> 
Well, they were just unable to get into how right. awful these these <laughs> you know these artists that they idolize well, how yeah, awful their characters are. Because this would have been at like the height of Tony Curtis being a teen heartthrob, right? So, yes, and he so did it because he wanted to kind of destroy that image a little bit, right? He wanted to be exactly. Like, He's not exactly what he wanted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that that's like a really interesting kind of um, you know aspect to this that this is this is a very writerly very actorly kind of film and one that you know I find works really well with um, people broadly like if you show someone a noir and you kind of want to give them an idea of what the genre is you know this is a pretty good place to start for people and it's very funny just that at the time people were like oh my god no Tony Curtis no 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 he's a beautiful romantic man he cannot (laughs) be this slimy little piece of shit that he plays in this film Burt Lancaster Uh, couldn't possibly be as cold or angry as he's depicted as here, which no. uh, by all accounts of the backstage of this movie, that's exactly who he was. But yeah, I heard that they made, yeah. they had him use his actual glasses because they they said that it made him look like a really tough and kind of aggressive like librarian or professor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he definitely does. He's yeah. very very mean. Well, and he's got such yeah, a the, the, physically imposing presence too. Like his. When he stands next to their characters, like there is like this sort of sinister power about him. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, and and they they wanted someone like that. They originally wanted uh, Orson Welles. Oh yeah, <laughs> I see that. That, that. I can imagine Orson like thriving on the dialogue and on yeah. the parts where like you are you are this like social center of attention because he commands that. But I. But I don't think he could hit the coldness like Lancaster. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I, I do like what Lancaster, especially ultimately, you know, did with it. The way that he de- he delivers his lines, this very spare kind of brutishness to them, and he 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 definitely comes off like a man who thinks so highly of himself that no one around him is even worth like a like a second glance. <laughs> yeah. And it's worth noting that this is very true to, um, as Casey mentioned, this is very true to what Lancaster was was like. People say on set that you know even on previous films, uh, he was partially cast because. Um, you know, the, the, the history of people working with him was that, you know, he was very intimidating and very volatile. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, so, so they were specifically like, yeah, let's, let's get this guy, you know, we're looking for an intimidating, volatile artist. Who should we get? <laughs> and, and it should be noted, Lancaster was one of the producers. So he saw this right. in himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. He's like, oh, I can be that asshole. Definitely. Yeah. Well, yeah, and part of uh, why that that test screening was so notorious too, the one that I was mentioning before, is that Burt Lancaster tried to beat up uh, McKendrick at it. I, I sw- <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, he he blamed him for how well it, or how poorly it was doing with audiences. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but, but then admitted several years later that it was actually a good movie. It just didn't make the money he hoped it would. Right. No, it was it, it was it was a bomb. They lost like millions of dollars on 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 the film and it basically tanked this dude's career. If you're wondering why, you know, Alexander McKendrick, who you look at his filmography and you're like, wow, he made one of the most famous noirs ever. And then like the lady killers. Right. Um, and like that's basically it. <laughs> and, um, you know, part of the what happened there was that this movie bombed so hard and, you know, he didn't uh, he didn't get much of a chance to work again. I believe he went into teaching. <laughs> film. Uh, OK. 
so yeah, kind of unfortunate that he just he gotten so much industry shit for making just a really good movie. But what a person <laughs> yeah. to learn from, right? Yes, that's true. <laughs> Um, but yeah, for, for, I'm assuming most people are familiar with Sweet Smell of Success, but for anyone who isn't, uh, it's based on the earnest, um, is it Lehman? Lehman? Yes. Novelette? Uh, Sweet Smell of Success, uh, originally titled in its cosmopolitan debut, Tell Me About It Tomorrow. I do like this title better. <laughs> I do like that. Um, yeah, the only reason they made him change it was because they didn't like the word smell. They were like, we don't like, it's smelly. You know, that's not, a, <laughs> we don't want our readers thinking about that word, even though that is the perfect word to be thinking about watching this movie. This is like a very pungent film. Yes. <laughs> um, but this film is based on um, Ernest Lehman's real experiences working as an assistant um, under the uh, New York press agent and columnist for The Hollywood uh, Reporter, or sorry, no, he is the New York press agent and he was working for a columnist, um, Irvin uh, Hoffman. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, maybe I'm getting these details mixed up. Oh, you, you've got to go. Um, um, but yeah, essentially he came into this film writing this film and he was like, I, he just really wanted to show the sliminess of what people considered sort of like the crime underworld or the streets, the kind of thing we were just talking about in night in the city, the way, you know, the, this world of forgers and hustlers and, you know, things of that nature, um, that it is actually just as present in the world of journalism and politics. And, you know, despite the appearance, the appearances that these people in these places might, um, put on. Uh, critically, this and is would, also a, uh, a real stab at a very famous columnist of the time, Walter Winchell. Uh, mm, Winchell, right. mm. Winchell was an extremely influential gossip rag guy who very much could destroy very famous people very easily just by printing dirt about them. Uh, <laughs> and he was constantly surrounded by uh, press agents who were desperate to get his attention and desperate to get their stories into his column. Uh, he, mm -hmm. he held court at a restaurant called, uh, I forget which club, <laughs> I believe it may be the Swan Club in New York or something, but he had a table right by the VIP lounge that everyone had to approach him at and he would destroy <laughs> you with, with like withering comments if he didn't want to see you. Uh, but he was, <laughs> <laughs> which is incredible cause it's exactly what we see. It, oh my God. It is. And importantly, uh, in the, in the final years of Winchell's popularity, he aligned himself with McCarthy and HUAC, uh, and because he was really upset at a lot of like the liberal and lefty celebrities who never gave him the time of day. Uh, so yeah, he would target them. And one of the targets of his ire on point was Burt Lancaster, which I think is why Lancaster is so attracted to this film. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would make a lot of sense. Oh man. Goddamn. Yeah, I speaking of what you were just talking about, um, you know, one of my favorite aspects of this film is the the kind of power that they give to this, you know, this 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 writer who, you know, mm -hmm. by, you know, who who unlike a lot of the other characters isn't really so much active as he kind of hangs out in the shadows a little bit. A lot of the time, you know, he's not like um, Tony Curtis, who is, you know constantly uh moving and constantly you know scheming and things like this there's there's something about him that's you know strangely uh like immobile like a yeah. lot of the time when we see him like sometimes he'll get up but if, if he gets up and stands to have a conversation with you that's when you know it's real like a lot of yeah, the other scenes are him, like sitting in a restaurant 
Yeah. He's sitting in a restaurant and he's like eating and he doesn't, he couldn't give it. He's like, no, no, I'm doing something else. He couldn't be bothered to give, you know, you the, the time of day. Um, there's a phone at his restaurant table. You have to call right. to ask permission to approach. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and people will walk by and like ask for, you know, things and he'll just be like, no, fuck you. <laughs> like it's very, it, 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 his, the way that Lancaster plays him, it's, it's very, like very casually powerful, but like the way that they shoot him is like unbelievable. Like you totally get that. They shoot him constantly at a low angle with lights, like directly over his head, creating these like very like evil, like shadows on his face and the glasses he's just commanding <laughs> with the glasses. Yes. And he's just like commanding people to, um, do things and yeah. the relationship that he has with Tony Curtis is really interesting because again Tony Curtis we've mentioned you know mostly known at this time for you know he's a romance comedy kind of pretty boy and he fought for this role because he wanted to play something you know uh, that kind of broke that image and you know made people think of him as you know more of a, 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 a diverse actor yeah. that could play more roles than just you know the, the heartthrob and so you know you understand why a role this slimy and sort of unromantic and unheroic kind of, you know, appealed to him in that way. But the relationship that he has to um, JJ is like, he's like the little rat that gets <laughs> commanded all of the seedy little poisonous bidding yeah, like, <laughs> that, that, that he has. Like even when he approaches him uh, for the very first time at the restaurant where they have that awesome like phone conversation or to get permission to approach him. Um, the very first thing that JJ does is like get a waiter to come by and just be like, get this man out of here. And it's only until uh, he presents him with something that he's interested in. I think it was something to do with his sister that he lets he allows him to sit beside him and, you know, mm -hmm. be, be a part of the business. But until that point, he's just like, get this guy the fuck away from me. There, There's an excellent behind the scenes story about that approach, by the way, which is that... Um Apparently, Burt Lancaster was furious at like the initial script suggestion that JJ would slide over and ever allow Tony Curtis's character like to sit next to him. Uh, to, <laughs> yeah. to, to the point where like he was so angry at that it, he allegedly like threw the table set on the ground until <laughs> they compromised. So the compromise is that Tony Curtis pulls a chair from somewhere else and sits next to him, but slightly behind him. And I honestly think that's better for the movie. It is. I mean, diva move, but I think honestly a good creative choice. So <laughs> I'm glad that he fought for it so aggressively, I guess. The, the ends justify the means in this case. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Flip as many tables as you want, Lancaster. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely they, they use a lot in the intensity of the performances and in, you know, against, you know, little visual tricks like that. They really do get you to understand the power dynamics of what you're witnessing here, which is that this guy has all the power in the world. And, you know, the other guy is, you know, sort of his his the guy who's willing to get his hands dirty for him in the places he can't really go to anymore. But beyond that, if he's not useful in that realm then like why the fuck would he ever like this guy is beneath right. him he's yeah. lower than his nose he doesn't want to be able to smell him in his vicinity like get <laughs> this man out of here the first conversation they have on the phone is um him saying uh, it's very similar to night in the city where he said that uh you know you've got it all but you're a dead man uh right. what is it that uh jj says he says you're dead son get yourself buried 
Well, you do it yourself. I do like that implication. (laughs) Meanwhile, uh, seconds earlier, uh, what was it that... um, it's Tony playing Sidney Falco. Falco says, um, describes JJ as his best friend in the world. Literally seconds <laughs> right. before that phone conversation happens to his sister. Um, be- because for anyone who hasn't seen it, the, the very basic plot, and I do love how simple the, the plot of this is. Um, it, a lot of the because complications it feels are so complicated, but like when he starts scheming and all of that, but yeah, continue. it's very wordy and complicated in yeah. terms of, the, the character work that's being done. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's so interesting is how simple what ultimately is happening here is, which is that Sidney Falco, he is this press agent who's trying to get, uh, you know, uh, space in JJ's column because he needs that space to help promote his artists, which gets him paid. But he is being sort of shut out uh, by JJ because JJ is very angry with him. And the reason he's angry with him is because his sister, um, Susie, is in a relationship with a jazz guitarist musician and he doesn't like that. And prior to the film, you know, it's kind of implied sort of historically that already um, Falco has supposed to have already broken them up. And he said that he did and he got paid for it or whatever was supposed to happen. (laughs) But they've been seeing each other behind the scenes and he didn't actually break them up. And now they are looking to actually get married, which sends things into kind of like the next gear. It's very serious. You know, it's a lot harder to break up if they are, you know, that committed to each other. (laughs) Yes. Um, so the, really the entirety of this film becomes, can Sidney Falco stay afloat, uh, in, in his business as a press agent, uh, while also, you know, absolutely destroying this, you know, very, uh, genuine relationship between these two love struck kids, essentially. Yeah. I found um, I found one of the core differences too between this and Night in the City, um, just in how they do character stuff, is that it's so hyper focused on the lead here and his scheming to the point where every character that he, well, not everyone, but most characters that he interacts with, almost become completely disposable. Like they don't even take the time for them in the movie a lot of the time. Like they don't flesh them out as much as they do in Night in the City. Um, and I like that though, uh, the way that it applies this. It, it leads to kind of like you not knowing whether or not you should get try to be getting to know a character each time he talks to somebody different. But what I do like about it is that it just expresses how much he feels these people are disposable when he's going through his scheming and trying to just get what he needs to, whether it be survive, succeed, whatever it is. Um, yeah, there's also these really great cinematography by James Wong Howe, who we previously talked about because he shot Seconds, Ooh, uh, which is awesome. like one of the films that we really loved on this show. It's yeah. like, it, an incredible looking film. Um, but he also did Fantasia, uh, The Thin Man, you know, like a very well-known cinematographer. And there's there's something, I think, really special about the way that he follows Falco around, which is mm, that yeah. the camera moves with the, uh, you know, with the game that he's kind of playing in his head. I I really like the first sequence when he goes to the jazz bar and there's these great movement on the band that's playing. And Steve is obviously the guitarist there who is hooked up with with Susie. And, you know, he's there to essentially scheme and try to break this couple up because they're supposed to have already been broken up. And the manager even, you know, basically lies to him and says he thinks that they they have been broken up. 
And Steve, um, Steve is the squarest jazz performer of all time. <laughs> so funny. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 the critic even the critic comes up to him and what does the critic say? I thought it was so funny. I, I had to write it down. It was like he, he uh, he's a combination of traditional form and progressive style. Um, and I was like, he was not moving. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is this is this is like the uh, the, the the cleanest uh, le- least rowdy uh, jazz performance you've ever seen in film. Yeah, because like every other time <laughs> we've seen it in in uh, these older films, especially in like this era, it's it's almost al- always portrayed like they're they're drinking heavily, smoking weed, shooting up heroin, like just just going nuts. And yeah, he's like the most yeah, clean I, I, cuts. Like well, what was that dude. one we talked about with Peter Labuza? Was it the Phantom Lady? The one oh, where yeah. um and it goes into the, like the, the, the underground the, jazz scene at a certain point. Yeah, and there, there's like a whole sequence where like literally the the, the, the hyper cut playing <laughs> of the instruments becomes like this erotic sensation for right, the characters for the and stuff. Like there's none of yeah. that energy here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they di- they discovered very quickly that uh, Steve Dallas, uh, they or that the actor playing Steve Dallas could not even pretend to play guitar well. So they <laughs> they kind of shot around that and surrounded him with actual jazz musicians, uh, yeah. hoping well, that yeah. would draw the that attention worked. away. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I, I I I like the way that the camera follows Falco's train of thought, the way that he snoops and creeps and spies. What uh, what's Steve says? I wonder. He says, "You scratch for inf- information like a dog instead of just asking like a man." Yeah. And the way that the camera follows him, like you know, he'll be half talking to Rita, his friend who's a waitress at the bar, or I guess friend in quotation marks. We'll say because we have a scene to talk about later. Yeah. Um, he, he'll be talking to Rita who like needs help from him and you know, he'll, he'll be having that conversation shot reverse shot with her. And then the camera will like pan around as he instead starts watching Steve and his manager, because he's actually not at listening to her. He's not there. He doesn't care about her. Right. He's there specifically for, you know, the scheme that he's playing and the, and the camera absolutely just, it, it flows with him and the way that he maneuvers and how little, uh, you know, he thinks of a lot of the people um, around him, which is, you know, again, something very similar to night in the city. But I, I do think that there's something interesting about how it really locks you into, you know, how ruthless Falco is is um yeah even just in the actual minutia of the of the the plans that he's orchestrating and there are a couple moments like that in night in the city that i was talking about like the one where you you watch him play the strangler and gregorius off each other which ends up resulting in gregorius's death which is you know yeah. really really brutal so it, both of these films i think have something to say about you know these characters being very skilled at what they do but nothing but what quite they do like the i mean bad yeah and and nothing quite like and more detail later of course but with like rita like we never have a scene in night in the city i think that's arguably as scummy and sleazy as the one where he tries to set up the uh the the cigarette waitress or yes. Rita, i believe yep um yeah and so that that is a uh, for for me that was and i'm sure many others that have watched the movie it was a, a core difference in their characters there because that was just it's one of the grossest scenes in the film for sure absolutely yeah which that's, i, yeah, I that's guess a, we, that's we'll a really painful yet, scene yeah it's it's <laughs> core difference in their character there for sure Mm-hmm. The ways mm-hmm. that they use people are very different. Yeah, yeah. Because at least with it, it felt like at least with Harry, it's like like he's using them, yes, but he almost feels like he's trying to set them up so everybody wins, even though it's completely misguided. Whereas whereas Falco just 
it just it's completely self-interested and at a certain point i guess just for like survival so he just does some of the grossest shit in this film yeah although i i do like that they make clear that uh even unlike night in the city where you do you get you do get some sort of the, the way that they shoot the london location work and the way that they shoot how desperate and sweaty he is you you, you get some idea that you think that he's kind of like this poor guy who is trying to survive and yes he could right, decide yeah. to just go put in a day's work but there is a pickup on south street like street level he we are doing do this, this because we have to yes yes there exactly. is a really interesting clarification that they make in this film where um you know, they uh, his his secretary literally says, like, why? Like, why do we need to do this? Like, you do pretty well as a press agent. <laughs> yeah. like, you could just be a press agent like you make good money. You have a decent office. You know, you're not like JJ successful, but you're successful and, enough. And we you know? see other yeah. press agents within the orbit of JJ or even who are rivals to JJ that seem to at least have a decent life doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 what is it? What does he say? He says, um. Uh, it's not enough because he needs to get way up high where it's always balmy, where no <laughs> one snaps his fingers and says, hey, shrimp, rack the balls, or hey, mouse, uh, go out and buy me a pack of butts. <laughs> we will have to get into uh, how the, the, the dialogue in this film is absurd. Oh, uh, I yeah. I, I, Non-stop I metaphors, I puns, just it never stops. I, I couldn't stop taking down notes and just writing down oh, like entire we, quotes. We can easily so do clever. a quote off by the end of this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a bunch written down uh, just myself, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, he basically says, you know, that he he doesn't he doesn't want tips from the kitty. He wants to be in the big game with with the big players. Right. Um, and uh, you know, it, 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 he's in a dog eat dog world, and he's willing to do the dog eating essentially. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there is a really wonderful contrast too in uh, Mary from the last movie and the, and uh, Tony Curtis's secretary in this movie where like the secretary in this movie is so exhausted by the screens <laughs> at this point. Like she, there, yeah. there is such a like weight to her expressions and her body language that like, you can tell that she still very much cares about Sidney Falco, but like there's kind of a resignation that it's never going to be better than this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I like the scenes with her when, when he is, when he goes up to her and he's like, watch me run a 500 yard dash with my legs cut off <laughs> after he realizes that, uh, you know, his, his, his client isn't going to get space in JJ's column because he hasn't done the job yet. Um, and then there's, a, there's another great scene later, which is, I think another really like one that really puts you into the perspective of how he works in a really cool way, which is the one where he goes to the, the editor of the globe, the paper who would, we see in the opening scene is like one of the most, you know, most read papers in, in, in the city because it's uh, JJ's paper. montage. Right. Yes. And it is the, the opening montage is like cars driving around delivery truck, driving around like Times square and like throwing papers at everyone and everyone reading going, Oh my God, we it's, it's the early edition. We all have to know what tomorrow's <laughs> news is, what he wrote. Um, and he gets a glimpse at the early, um, what is going to be going to print. And he sees that JJ has written this really nice review of this comedian that he saw who doesn't have a publicist. And he is just writing a nice review just because he genuinely really liked the performance. And you could just see Falco immediately go, I need to go get my hands on that guy and find out 
you know, I need to become his publicist. Mm-hmm. And there's something so amazing about watching him use that information and then go to the guy and make this huge gambit play where he's just like, you know, I'm, you know, you say you don't need a promoter, but I'm a great promoter and I could get you in JJ's column by tomorrow. He knows already that the guy is going to be written up in JJ's column tomorrow. He literally has the quotation on him <laughs> and he says, he, so he fakes this phone call with the secretary and I love the secretary who picks up and realizes that he's not actually talking to her after about 30 right. seconds and just like puts the phone down and lets him keep talking. It happens so like casually, every day. Exactly. Right. It's so casual for her. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I, like the, what a what a what a great scene that like lets you into the process of how he works is that immediately he takes information. He goes, "How can this information work for me? How can I trick everyone into thinking that you know this information actually came from me and I have the power of it?" And like it's crazy. And yeah. I, I I really want to, uh, to draw attention to that phone call as well because uh, Tony Curtis, the way he acts it is so beautifully like it's almost this like fantasy role play for, for Sydney as well. Imagining this world where JJ respects <laughs> him so much and that like, like he really gets into the acting of it, not just in the quote, but just every little bit of his, like his, his physicality and his voice and everything is just like, this is how he wishes people were excited to hear. Like, like he gets yeah. to tell JJ like, no, we're not going to lunch. I'll see you at dinner, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, Exactly. He can't help himself but add those like little casual conversation things to make him seem kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, he's he, he's important. He's a big player. Yeah, exactly. That's, that you know, even if he's only performing it and he's going to he's going to impress the people who think that. And because again, the next day the paper is going to say that because it's already being edited. It's already being, you know, uh, made up. And, uh, so, you know, the people who overheard that conversation he just had are going to be like, wow, that guy's a big shot. Oh, my God. And it might it might be the only scene we don't see Tony Curtis doing something on JJ's behalf. So I, I really love its presence, though, because it does suggest yeah. that, like, how many customers has he gotten this exact same way by just just pre-quoting JJ's column. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Um, that's what, why I like that. I really like being let into the process of how this guy works and, you know, the craft that, that he actually does. And it, it's very funny from his perspective and, you know, the way that we watch it, you know, it's very exhausting. Like the work that he puts in, it's, it's similar to night in the city where you have to see Harry, like, uh, but there's something a little bit more suave about Falco. He seems a little bit more in control. He's, yeah. he's not quite sweating as much. He's not quite as desperate. He's just very, very good. And I love the way that JJ describes that, which is in this big monologue he gets at that table when he, when Falco gets, you know, he, he worms his way into the table by saying that he has information and a message from his sister. And the message is, is that they are going to get married and that that's going to, you know, really trigger the, uh, the the next like 24 hours of the film which i do appreciate actually it basically is like 24 hours we need to break up this relationship for good how do we pull it off what are the machinations and the manipulations to pull that off but before that um he he's trying to describe because i think he he's at like a dinner table with a senator yes like literally a sitting u.s senator <laughs> and um there, there's a part where he answers the phone and uh, he basically like ruins someone's career like right then and there. And I love <laughs> that Tony Curtis is like, Senator, do you believe in capital punishment? Because uh, I don't remember what's the what's the exact line? Because it's you like, just watched a man about, put to death. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, 
then the senator goes like, you know, Mr. Falco, like, you know, let's figure out kind of who you are. And JJ gives this big monologue, which I think is really great, where he says, um, Mr. Falco, he, he's not an, an actor. He's not like a they, they guess that he's an actor because he's so pretty, which is true of Tony Curtis. <laughs> um, and uh, but they say he is a man of 40 faces, not one, none too pretty and all deceptive. Yeah. <laughs> the tricks of a um, slimy trade. Yeah, that's a it's, it's a, a a charming street urchin face. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! <laughs> yeah, so like that. I I actually love the scene that follows that line exactly too, where he asks Sydney, "Match me, Sydney." Uh, Sydney talking about his cigarette, and Sydney goes, "Not right this minute, JJ." And he only does that in that scene because Sydney, for one second, feels like he has the upper hand of information. Like any other scene, he will gladly light his cigarettes. But this one right. second, he can't do it because no, I've got something you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And and also he just like blisteringly insulted him in like the fanciest prose that you could. have. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I, I actually have some some power here. So I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Because uh, I think they ask him after, like, what what does a press agent do? And he's like, a press agent is meant to eat a columnist dirt and call it manners. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's so many great lines in this, like the, the senator right after that saying to JJ, why is it everything you say sounds like a threat? <laughs> and, and it's because it is like, I mean, that that is JJ's power is that he not only can control the public narrative, but he can look you dead in the eye and tell you, this is the narrative I'm going to give you. And unless you dance the way I want you to dance, it's what the world is going to think about you tomorrow. Yeah. Everyone knows him and he just commands the room and the conversation. And as we saw with that phone call, he can literally destroy people like on the spot. If he feels like it, he threatens to destroy um, he, the senators because he susses out that like, Oh, this, this young blonde, that's not your wife. That's here with you. Is there something there? Can I tell people that this is something? Yeah. Yeah. He, he literally hones in on it and goes, yeah, I don't believe that, you know, uh, Manny here is her agent. I have a feeling you're just saying that and you want to carry your mistress around with you to dinner and ruining your family man image. And the Senator is like, uh, and that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah he, he's, he's like, that's good advice. And he's like, great. You can appear on my TV show next week. If you want to make it up to me. Like, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, goddamn. Um, so th- th- there is something to be said about how they really capture, you know, this this power that JJ has. That is, you know, um, there's 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 almost no resisting it. You might as well just flow with it in some ways, um, even if what it's asking you to do is like really really terrible shit, which ends up being the experience of Sidney Falco, well, who you know uh, has to break up his uh, sister and this musician's relationship, and in order to do that, he's got to do some really filthy stuff to make that happen. Let, let's talk about that though, because there's something really fascinating about the character of JJ Hunsecker himself, which is. He even remarks, I love this dirty town. And he, yes, he, great line. <laughs> he, but he, he is so honed in on uh, exposing and knowing about everyone else's perversities and everyone else's vices. But he's so repressed in his manner that he seems to have like very few of his own, except yeah. for mm-hmm. this morbid, uh, some would possibly describe as almost incestuous obsession with like suppressing his sister. Uh, and yeah. yeah. And also just preserving his own power and influence. But like the influence itself is the thing, but like he doesn't seem to have any joy in life other than 
just maintaining this image and forcing his sister to live the way that he sees fit for her. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he is interestingly drawn in that way. I, although I, I do think that he comes alive a little bit in that scene where he does say, I love this dirty town and he's out on the street and he's just like navigating what he knows so well. He's talking it's like with the that, only time he expresses uh, beyond cop. rage mm-hmm. <laughs> It's when he's expressing the, his love for this filthy sleazy town that he, that he works with. Yeah. And, and how much power and control over it he has. I love that bit where, um, he's he's waiting for information from the corrupt cop on like this like suicidal actress and then he finds out over the radio that she's just died and he can now write it and get you know break the story in his in his column and uh yeah the idea of like you know a hollywood reporter guy going out onto the street talking to a corrupt cop and you know writing about suicidal actresses this is just all in a day's work man yeah uh, my right hand hasn't seen my left hand in 30 years Beautiful it's line. a great line that he gets in that scene <laughs> because uh yeah he i mean the, the dude the dude is not that's not the kind of work that he does um so it's up to sydney with his plan um to uh you know break up his sister in this musician's relationship but yeah you never really find out explicitly why he wants to do that beyond that you know he just he can't have her choosing her own future he controls this town and nothing that will will happen in this town that he doesn't um you know uh sign off on so i essentially right. I, I will say that uh, allegedly uh, ernest lehman uh knew something that a lot of the readers of Walter Winchell did not at the time, which was that Winchell had a similar obsession with controlling the life of his daughter, Walda, uh, bought her very expensive, uh, mink coats, uh, had her institutionalized for a period when she dated someone he didn't approve of. Uh, and and she was the only person that came to his funeral in the end, despite how famous he once was. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That is some sad shit. So yeah, that that there there was a deliberate uh, angling to the real man that Hunsecker is based on that no one in the audience could have been aware of. Oh wow! Goddamn. Yeah. Well, shit. That that absolutely uh, tracks. Although you do think that uh, Bert Bert Lancaster, you do wonder. You know, dude's a good looking dude. You're like, why, why can't you just go do something else, you know? Or yeah. why, why can't you just be happy with the, the things that you have? Why can't you just be happy for your sister a little bit? There's that yeah. deeply <laughs> creepy shot of her coming into his office, and he has that massive framed photo of her while he's looking at her. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I have that written down. That's so terrifying. And there's never it it reminded scene. me of... Uh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just it, There's never a scene where he interacts with another woman. Like, there, there's not one uh, where it seems like he has any type of real... I don't know, human no attraction. Um, need to, yeah, yeah. Like he doesn't feel like he's attracted to really anybody. It's just business is, I guess, his love. Um, and it would, I think it, it would make me feel like maybe he only wants her to be with someone that is up like at his high ranking in the world. But it just feels strange for him to not have any uh, interest, uh, in, uh, like love interest whatsoever while controlling his sister at the same time. It's like, it, it just adds a, yeah, another touch to the weirdness. The of way it. that we see him, he has no actual personal life. Like going right. out for dinner with people is not like a thing that he enjoys doing. It's like business keeps happening at his table around him because everyone wants his attention and, yeah. you know, uh, 
be, because they, they want him to print something in his column or something like that. I, I do like some of the ways that they navigate in the film, the, the sort of industry dynamics of how to get something like into print. Cause like a, a part of Sidney Falco's like entire plan, which by the way, I love the way that he describes it. Uh, cats in the bag and bags in the river. One of the best lines ever. <laughs> <laughs> so sick. Um, and, and his plan to break up Steve and Susie is to plant a, uh, a blind item in a column, which will, you know, have just enough detail that people will know that it's Steve and it's Steve's band. Um, but essentially suggesting that, you know, they are, uh, you know, uh, in, into the wrong sorts of town that they, they are, what, what is it that he, that they remark upon the, the stench or the odor, which is, <laughs> you're, you're meant to assume that, you know, he's getting into jazz and he's also smoking up a little bit. Right. <laughs> he's smoking that reefer. The devil's lettuce. Yeah. Yes. Which is enough that it, that would just ruin your career. <laughs> ruin your life. <laughs> and yeah, they, imply that he's, life. they imply that he's a red too, which again, tying, ah. there, there's a line about that. So they are, they are tying him explicitly again into the McCarthyist uh, side of the guy it was based on. So you're, you're two things. You're a pot smoker and you're a commie. That's the worst stuff you could be in a column. Even if you're a jazz singer for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you would you would think if he was like a politician it would be it would be more tricky. Yeah. But yeah. You kind of assume at least half of that. (laughs) Like (laughs) one out of those two, he'd definitely be, you'd assume. Um, but I, I really love the sequence where he, he has to plant this blind item and he has to get someone to print it. And the first thing he assumes to do is to um use some dirt that he has on a columnist and it goes horribly, horribly wrong. (laughs) Um, because the, the husband who he tries to, you know, say, you know, has been unfaithful to his wife and he has proof that he's been messing around with the little cigarette girls and he can get him in trouble. And the guy goes, I'm not going to be blackmailed. It's not going to happen. Um, the dude flat out on his face admits to his wife right in front of him (laughs) and said, do you know what? I got into a little bit of an oopsie um, (laughs) and I, 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 you know, it was an accident, you know, whatever. And (laughs) the funniest part for me was that the wife goes, that's the most honest thing that you've done in years. Um, I kind of (laughs) respect it. And uh, it it totally works out for that guy. And, And, but my favorite, my favorite element of this is that before this, you know, this, you know, this, attempt to blackmail a columnist into getting this, you know, this smear piece printed, the 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 columnist says um you and jj have like the scruples of a guinea pig and the morals of a gangster which is a really great line obviously yeah but my favorite part about this is that when that goes wrong and there's a huge kerfuffle and there's a fight and you know everyone knows that he fucked up and failed but not everyone could overhear the precise details of the conversation he immediately goes over to another writer and he uses the exact same insults that were just used on him and JJ to describe JJ <laughs> to this other columnist, Otis, to try to win him over because he knows that Otis um, hates you know, JJ. Uh, d- d- hates JJ. So yeah, he immediately uses the exact same insults that were just used on him and JJ and uses them himself in order to win over this columnist to get the piece. Well, and he, um, he tries to, he in. tries to convince Otis, this rival columnist to JJ, like, Hey, if you print this story about the sister's boyfriend, that's really going to embarrass JJ, isn't it? Like that was the reason yes. to do this. Yes. Yeah. That, that is so sick, but he's not won over by that. Cause the dude's kind of a creep and the dude instead wants, uh, a girl. And so, 
or or at least uh, Falco offers him a girl because yeah. he notices he's checking out all the waitresses in the restaurant, and he knows. Yeah, Rita so he personally. was like, yeah, because I what, what's the line he gets to? He's like, I, I'd go a mile for a chuckle, uh, two for a pretty girl, and then he goes three. <laughs> three miles for a pretty girl. <laughs> and then, yeah, then he takes it, takes him back to his own apartment where Rita is waiting for him. Uh, and Rita was there, you know, asking about the, 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 the key underneath the, the mat or whatever to get in. She thinks because, she's going to be there for like a date with Tony Curtis. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's so brutal when, you know, Falco gets back and in order to get his hit piece printed, you know, he basically has to set up, you know, uh, that she's going to be used as a sex tool um, in, in this moment. And he pitches it to her like, and him basically together in the same room as each other, which is like such a crazy move to try to pull. (laughs) Yeah. Real, (laughs) real ballsy move right there. (laughs) Also the fact that she at first is just like, like, fuck you, you're a snake, whatever. And then he goes into the room to further convince her to do it. And he starts saying yeah. like how he's a powerful man and you'd be stupid not to do it. And just just a bunch of guilt tripping and, and manipulation. And it's like, it's one thing to, to just, just make this happen to begin with. But then for another, for her to outright be to very really coax upset, her into it no. even though she's yeah. crying and, and aggressively yeah. <laughs> push her into it and then and you know she's calling him a snake and and it's just yeah it's it's a very very gross scene and then he even has to add like because before we see him and he's got like a, a good sense of humor we were writing we we're talking about a lot of like the great uh lines in this movie and stuff um and then it ends up leading to something that's actually really gross, which is right before he leaves, he says something like, uh, now don't do anything I wouldn't do, which gives you a lot of leeway. And he has a fucking smile on his face. Like he, like he, he's Disgusting. not even aware of what he's just done almost. It's just, or he just doesn't care. I don't, I don't know which, but it's just I, like, I, I think honestly, it's just like, uh, it's just part of the yeah. par for the course yeah. for the kind of business that he does. And he's just like, yeah. It, brutal or the other Ooh. line too that's really sickening where he says um you know before um she she mentions that she had like an, an altercation kind of go wrong and she sort of misread some signals on kind of like an important guy and she said that uh, you know eventually i kind of did get into the tropical island mood but i was already kind of kicked out and he uses that against her like a thing that she was saying to him personally about a story about her yes and then he says how many drinks does it take to put you in the tropical island mood is what he says to her and then he gives her more like it's just yeah it's so disgusting (laughs) oh my god yeah and for him to do it with a smile on his face like just what a sleazy performance good well done, Curtis, on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I could certainly see that being the scene that really revolts, like, the, the yeah. teenage girls that come in just to see a pretty to- Tony Curtis. Yeah, like, for, yes. I mean, for me, that this was, I, there's a there's a ton of disgusting shit in this, but that for me, that was definitely the, the big scene where I kind of had the recoiling and really just thought of this guy as a total scumbag now. And you just, yeah, you, I mean, you just can't that, know how far he's going to go there. It's so right. awful. Yeah. Yeah, I like yeah, you're, you're very nervous in that scene. Very nervous. Yeah, cuz cuz that's just it like comparing this especially specifically with Night in the City, like on on some level by the end, you still kind of sympathize with Harry a little bit. Yeah. Like he did some bad shit, he ruined some lives, but there was something, you know, it's that desperation to, again. Outside we of stealing yeah. outside of stealing her money, like Mary is relatively untouched by the things right. he's doing. 
Right. Yeah. The, 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 there's something it's so crazy to have like to like add in a scene where he's like, you know, trying to get like Mary raped or something, you know. Right. Like, the, exactly. like if, if, if that happened, like it would, you know, again, it, you would get this um, where you <laughs> yeah. just, yeah, you're very, very put off. Um, and yeah, it, it makes it it's really, really ugly. Um, and I think that's definitely, you know, part of what the the movie is getting at is uh, especially how how ugly these people have become while, you know, not seeing themselves in that way until, you know, uh, uh, until things kind of go wrong, as they always do in a movie like this. There's always a, some level of, um, you know, existential uh, fatalism is on the way. Yeah. Uh, although I, I, I will say the first time I watched this, I was kind of surprised about the exact twist and turns that we kind of got mm-hmm. um, because there's one very obvious one. Uh, and maybe we'll get that to get there when we hit the climax. But there, there was one very obvious one where I was like, oh, the sister's going to kill herself. And that's not mm. what happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he does get this column successfully put into the paper. It does start getting people talking about Steve. And, you know, it does ruin the sister's plans to talk to JJ the next morning and tell him about how she is going to um, marry him. Because now, you know, there's some mud in the column is, I think, what uh, what Rita describes it as. (laughs) Um, And yeah, there's there's something interesting to this where like Falco is so excited about how he's kind of won. He's almost acting like a little boy. Um, I think, I think they describe him as the way that he moved. Like, uh, he's, he's a boy stealing gum from a, like a, like a slot machine or something. What is it that she says? I don't know if I wrote um, that one. I didn't either, but it's something yeah. to that effect. Yeah, that, that, that's the one where he's doing the whole thing where he's trying to get the 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 column that's already pre-written and using it to his advantage and everything from the editor. Because it's set, it's set right. up that he kind of actually previously has a, a relationship where he either sleeps with or and or bribes the woman who edits the globe as well. He has <laughs> he has all kinds of those conversations where you're like, does, I think does he have he, a personal relationship with this person or does, does he business. blackmail them? Yeah. <laughs> I think he flirts with her a lot, um, but. What's, what's interesting is this is supposed to be like someone that's connected to JJ. And to my knowledge, we never see a scene where she interacts with JJ. It's always Tony Curtis. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Could just speak yeah, to like, true. like maybe he doesn't even, yeah. <laughs> JJ doesn't even speak to the, the lower people for him that he actually works. Uh, he just or sends has the papers in and you deal with it. Like, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this this sets off like a like like a huge issue, and the the issue becomes that Steve, uh, you know, he knows that Falco and JJ don't like him, so he immediately, you know, th- despite all of the performance and all of the kerfuffle and everything surrounding it, you know, he just immediately goes, "I know that they they planted this story on me," and he immediately confronts him about it. And what he doesn't realize is that this is actually kind of part of their plan. They want to create a rift between Steve and JJ that makes it look like it's Steve's fault so that Susie, you know, will be caught in the middle of a fight between, you know, this fiance and her brother, but in a way that's going to make the fiance look really bad. Like he's the aggressor in that particular situation. And this is part of the sort of machinations of the plan that they are putting forth. Um, and there's a lot of really great moments that kind of come out of this again, great lines of dialogue. Uh, your mouth is as big as a basket and twice as empty. I think <laughs> is one that Falco says to, says, says to, to Steve, um, because he's like, what, you know, I, what I, I, you're, you're saying I got a smear article written about you in uh, a column from a guy who hates JJ. 
you know, the guy who hates JJ's doing him a favor, which is, I guess, a brilliant move by getting Otis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's like, yes, yeah, sound, sound, uh, logic. Why not me? Why didn't I do it? Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, a lot of this ends up, uh, getting into a, there's, there's a big sequence that takes place where this all kind of comes to a fold where it's Steve and JJ actually kind of like meet up and JJ doesn't fully understand the extent to what Falco had planned because he's actually really upset with Falco at first because he's kind of like Susie, you know, you just really upset her. And now, you know, I have to try and get him his job back. And that's not really like the position I want to be. And you didn't destroy him enough. He, you know, it hasn't worked yet. It's also got um, one of Lancaster's best lines when, uh, when Curtis calls him up, he says, you sound happy, Sydney. Why should you be happy when I'm not? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is, 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 is that the bit too? Cause I think I, I wrote this down somewhere. Is that the bit too, where, when he first picks up the phone, um, he literally doesn't put it to his ear for like 20 seconds yeah. as like <laughs> Sydney is talking to him. Like what a power move. Like he just doesn't, <laughs> he's like, I'm going to finish typing out this, uh, this line first before I actually give you the time of my day by even just fucking picking up the phone. <laughs> oh <So> good. <sighs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really like, um, the scene where Sydney makes the plan clear to him where he says, JJ, like, look what I've done. Your sister thinks that you are, you know, you have in the palm of your hands, the power to save this guy, but this guy's not going to accept it because he's, he's a blustering, you know, uh, righteous dude who just stormed into my office and accused me and, you know, freaked out. And, you know, he's going to do the same to you and he's going to do it in front of your sister. It's going to look really bad. And he, I think he asks him like, like, how do you know, um, that this is, you know, going to happen. And he says, uh, uh, because he has integrity. He has, he has acute integrity, like indigestion. <laughs> um, and, and I never thought that I'd make a killing on a guy's integrity. And JJ immediately clicks into the plan. He's like, Oh, like he's actually using this guy's sort of straight man honesty that he has like against him as part of this performance that they're setting up. And as soon as JJ realizes how like evil that is in a way that he's using his good qualities <laughs> to destroy him, he's like, I would hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. Yes. <laughs> One of the all time great noir lines. That, that that stuff is so good. And uh, another sequence that's really perverse um, is the one where he gets to uh, play the the good um, brother to Susie when Susie is like trying to leave and he like calls her in and he's, you know, explaining the situation that that she's in and everything like that. But he he gets to put on the show of being like this perfect brother. And the way that Lancaster plays it is like, you know, he he's he's selling that he really cares about his sister and he kind of likes her choice of, of of boyfriend and he supports her in all of this. But, you know, we obviously know that he is the one who is pulling the strings on the fiance's demise. And there's something so perverse about having that knowledge and watching him put on this perform this convincing performance in front of her. Well, and this yeah. is the scene where he himself has 40 faces. Like he strikes all these different tones. He's the brother, but then he's kind of paternal and he's kind of strict and he's kind of like, he gets to play yeah. all these different modes all at once. And it's, yeah, it's as about as animated as he gets in the entire movie. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's really the only sequence we see where he's tr- like what his idea of a personal relationship would be. And it's one filled with so much manipulation um, that you're, you're kind of blown away. And, and immediately to the way that um, he's like, I'll get Steve back his job. Cause I, you know, he, he means this much to you. And uh, you know, she, she kind of like demands it of him a little bit. And he's just like, I like this new attitude that you've got, you know, you're not limp or dependent, even though, you know, he's, he's constructing a world where she's going to be more dependent on him while saying, you know, you're doing well, girl, you're, you're as independent as I've ever seen you. Anyway, I'm going to, place this call and we're going to (laughs) destroy your life. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, this leads to some, some really interesting places where like, I wouldn't say it becomes hard to follow, but it moves really fast. I don't know if you guys had that experience. It moves really, really fast through those convert through these conversations as you know, because all the, I guess all of the different agendas kind of start, bouncing off of each other and uh in some ways kind of like tearing little uh, shreds into each other a little bit um and stuff like that and there's something i find so painful about the big scene where he they steve and um uh, jj confront one another and he gets to put on this big performance where in, an, you know, in his empty tv studio so again we're at a stage yes. it is a performance performance yeah yes um huge performance and he where he he goes you know i don't take kindly to you and falco teaching me ethics and stuff like that and you know it's 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 very big words and obviously we know that he's absolutely right but you know they're putting on the performance that that he's not and they have all of the sort of images all on their side they're playing off his right righteous anger to make him look brash um there and there uh, is a beautiful scene here too where well two beautiful scenes but the first one is when uh Falco is sitting in like the stands and um, JJ goes to sit beside him and he's insulting uh, Falco this entire time. Like he is just saying like, if a man like this ever came near my sister, I would beat him to death with a baseball bat or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. He said, I'd take a baseball bat and break it over his head. And while he's (laughs) saying these insults, unlike the dinner scene where Curtis would not even strike a match for him, he is holding his lighter out to light a cigarette before he, before Lancaster even asks for it. It's such a great little bit of business. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's right. Yeah, no, that's, and that's a, right. Before uh, Steve says, you know, do you, do you suppose when Tony Curtis dies, they're going to send him to dog and cat heaven <laughs> again with the dog imagery? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I like to the bit where, you know, they're they're trying to get Susie involved in it. And he's like, why don't you speak up, dear? What's your opinion, dear? He's like, your deers sound like daggers and you're making her, you know, like 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 afraid to speak. And then they kind of do this cold stare at each other. And JJ says, if looks could kill, I'd be dead. <laughs> the, the blocking of that scene is brilliant, too, because you have you have Steve, you have uh, Tony Curtis, you have. Burt Lancaster and Steve's manager, and they're all very prominent in the foreground, and they're all talking around Susie, who is in the background and gets increasingly smaller and blocked out by them. They're all talking about her future. She has no say, and like she, she yep. gets smaller and smaller as she kind of walks away and sits down and just gives up completely. It's yeah, yeah, it couldn't have been blocked better for that shot. 
Yeah. And, and, and she, you know, she, and that's, what's so interesting about this too, is that, you know, by, by the end of, you know, where we end up to, you know, she, we can tell that she knows what's happening too. Everyone can yeah. feel where this is all coming from, that this big song and dance that they're putting on is really for themselves so that they don't have to look like bad people for doing the things that they want to do. That's literally all it is. Uh, but even though everybody fucking knows, they're literally just toying with these people's lives, like right in, in front of them. And when he eventually coaxes Steve into get so angry that uh, he calls him uh, a national disgrace, not a glory, in, including his, his writing and that he's a, he's a, he, he deals in slimy scandals and everything. Um, they, they, they force him to explode at him in a really public way. So that's not JJ's fault that JJ has to go over to Susie and say, you can't see that man anymore. Um, because look what he said about me. How could you be with someone who said that about your brother, even though I didn't even do anything? <laughs> he, he, he gets to appear wounded and hurt and righteous while also telling, forcing his sister to, you know, not pursue her love interest. Um, and despite all of the language and the performance of it all being correct, something just still feels really wrong about it. And, uh, Susie ends up kind of running away and knowing that she, you know, she has to cut it off and she does cut it off, but there's something even more layered into the sadness of her cutting it off, which is she's not cutting it off because Steve got angry and Steve said something and she's cutting it off because her brother is dangerous. That is actually what she says and that she is going to hurt you. I see, I see what it is that he's, you know, doing to you. And, uh, you know, I, I can't, uh, I can't change who my brother is. And Steve gets this really sad line about how, you know, uh, you know, the, the goodbye that she is saying sounds like it's, you know, she's a ventriloquist dummy that her brother is operating and stuff like that. Really brutal, um, you know, kind of situation where both of these people know exactly what's happening, but they basically can't prove it, you know? Yeah, uh, that that's all there is to it. You know, the, they put on the best show imaginable <laughs> between uh, Falco and JJ. She, she so, would yeah, be that, happier knowing that he's safe somewhere else where her brother won't write about him anymore. Yeah. Brutal. She's just like, yeah, you know, my brother is capable of great harm. Um, and I would rather see you alive and happy and working than be involved in your destruction (laughs) (laughs) simply by just being related to my brother who wants to see your downfall. And, and meanwhile, um, JJ still wants Steve to be destroyed, even though they are breaking things off. And I love, he's one, even though he's one. Yeah, exactly. But I love that he frames it. Not it's no longer about his sister Susie. It is now because Steve had the nerve to insult <laughs> right. his readership. <laughs> yes. The American people, goddammit. And this great country. Yep. <laughs> yeah, my my sixty million believers. He insulted all of those men and women by saying that I'm no good. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. Ultimately, that leads him to get Falco to go one step further. And even though he's one to still destroy Steve even further uh, by planting uh, drugs on him and using the corrupt cop to arrest and beat him and hospitalize him, uh, scare him, get him arrested, uh, I love a, and, you know, get him ruined. I love the way that they shoot that that scene, too, because they set it up like 
Sydney comes out of the bar that he knows that Steve is about to leave at, and he kind of has a little conversation with the with the corrupt police, and they don't like each other. He calls him like a fat slob and shit like that. But then the camera yeah. follows him up onto the bridge so that you still see the the two cops waiting for Steve and Steve coming out of the bar, but it's from a very far away. And then the camera just kind of gets closer and closer as Steve is is closed in on up until a point where it does this really awesome uh, zoom in as it shows kind of like the shock and, and uh, frightened state that, that Steve's in. And instead of actually showing the, uh, the violence, like the, uh, the, um, the cops beating him up, it just cuts to uh, a cymbal hit and like the band playing this like really sporadic jazz song. And that's how they mm-hmm. express the beating. And I thought that that was just, uh, just a very cool way of doing it and um, created a lot of tension. I really like the build up to that moment. Yeah, I, I love the part where the cops are following beside him in the car and they like sort of slink out of yeah. the car as they're about to like get him. Yeah, there's there's a lot of great little like And it's visual, straight mafia um, mode. Like, like that. it's like these are cops. <laughs> it's just such a uh it's true yeah. police brutality. Like Right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and and too the bit where um you know cuz cuz Falco he kind of knows what he's doing is is really wrong um at this point but he's kind of like I'm in too deep whatever you know it, it's going to be done but when when he plants that drug plants the drugs into his coat and then uh the manager comes up and says like you guys have done it like you know he's 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 won you know yeah. like they they broke it off JJ wins he gets all the marbles like leave them alone and he still decides yeah I'm going to not take the drugs out. I'm going to still ruin this career, this kid's career. Um, anyway, the scene of him being and, uh, convinced for that is really, really good because, uh, you know, Falco does express to JJ. He's like, I, he's like, I, he's like, I would never do this. This is too low even for us. Like this is too much. And like, it's not Burt Lancaster that suggests anything that convinces him. It is Sydney himself. Like he starts talking or like, I would not do it for all the money in the world. I wouldn't do it for this. I wouldn't even do it for a column. And then he stops himself for a second. And like, you see that <laughs> smirk slide across Burt Lancaster's face. Like, Oh, is that how cheap your soul is? Like, you know, he, he yeah. goes like, Oh, well, who do you think is going to write my column for me? Sydney, when I'm away for three months on a vacation with my sister to console her over this situation. Like you're going to do that. Yeah. And that's, that's all Which it is takes. weird too, by the way. <laughs> Uh-huh. You just want to throw that out there. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway. Come on, JJ. God yeah, I, I like the line that he gets in that scene where he's like, it's one thing to wear your dog collar. When it turns into a noose, I choose freedom or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I, what is it the cop says to him too? I appreciate you're looking out for the virtue of this city. <laughs> uh, is, is is what he says to him after he's just planted the... Uh, what's what's the cop's other line later when he when like Sydney's like leaving he's like come back here I want to castigate you yeah <laughs> um yeah but this leads to a really big climactic um sequence where he's he's out partying and he's 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 given out the you know he's 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 done it he has got into the big game he is successful everything he's done uh it, all it came to was the beating of this poor innocent man who just had integrity um and uh he he's he's actually gotten so successful he doesn't even care that that comedian who he tried to represent earlier comes up to him at the bar and it's like hey you can sign me now i saw that you did get me written up in jj's paper which he actually didn't (laughs) but you know he believes he did and uh he just couldn't care less both one because you think he's he's a little bit you know he's getting drunk because he's a little bit upset about what he's done 
but also you know he's like he's also done it and it's over and he's made it he calls the guy a bread and butter account to his face yes he's like i have a column now fuck you um (laughs) but he he gets a call to, to go to jj's apartment where he finds Susie out on the balcony at night the curtain billowing and the obvious visual threat there is that it's going to mirror what jj was writing about earlier the actress who committed suicide by jumping but he assumes jj Um, called him to the house yes which is really interesting um kind of moment because you know he he see he has to kind of like sneak his way in the door's kind of open he doesn't really know what's going on and you know he's he's like why why is jj not even here why is it just Susie? Um, and Susie is in like acting in like basically com- complete turmoil, uh, you know, that she doesn't, she doesn't care anymore. Why did you and JJ do it? And, you know, now you're going to be the man who drove his beloved sister to suicide and he's threatening him with that. He gets this big monologue too about, oh, it's so gross. <laughs> how, uh, yeah, how about she's a woman and so she, she needs to stop thinking with her hips and she needs to learn how to, you know, hustle and get off her bird legs and, and a girl's, you know, learn how the world works. A girl's best friend is her bed and all that stuff. It's Yeah, he says like oh using her hips, it's her nature, like it's a man's nature to go out and get what he wants. So you can really get his yeah. whole worldview right in this little mini monologue here. And it is not good. Yeah. But but the the really important element of it is that, you know, she is someone who is this this young, brittle, innocent thing that doesn't understand how, you know, navigating this world actually works, the cynical world that she's a part of. And the the great part about this monologue is that he ends up being completely wrong and that by um, attempting to commit suicide, uh, she actually. Uh, opens him up to the point where he is freaked out and he's shouting and he's apologizing and uh, just in time for JJ to show up and wonder what the hell is kind of like going on. And, you know, yeah, so and he, to preface this before he, he JJ has a line where he says, if you ever touch my sister, I'll beat your head in with a baseball bat. So there we <laughs> <Yes>. go. <laughs> now we're here. Yeah. <laughs> so Susie has actually staged this series of events. Susie was the one who called um, Falco and who called JJ and had them meet each other and is now having them meet each other, not understanding what's happening. JJ thinks that, you know, Falco is making some sort of move and, and Falco thinks that, you know, they successfully broke Susie, which to some degree, you know, they kind of did, but she, you know, she's not completely helplessly broken is, is what ends up being kind of like the twist of this sequence, Mm -hmm. which I think is, you know, really well, um, set up. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so Susie set Falco up to make it look like he's lying about her committing suicide. And then as a result, they start getting into a fight and he starts like confessing and revealing the plan and basically, you know, confirming the truth that she knew all along. And now she knows 100%. She gets them playing off each other and betraying each other, basically doing the reverse of the performance sequence we were talking about before where they yep. were trying to play them. I like the line too um, that JJ gets. He says something like, uh, he calls out a supposed lie that Falco is saying, not knowing that Susie knows that he's lying. And I just love that, yeah. like that triangle that forms as soon as all of the lies are exposed. But JJ still doesn't quite know who knows what. Um, it's just a, it's yeah. really good character work there. Yeah, he, he tries to pin it all um, on Falco. 
Yeah, um, right. And uh, as Falco is leaving, he gets this great line where he says, you got such contempt for people, it makes you stupid. You didn't beat those kids. You lost them. You'll never get her back as he's trying to like call the police and say, oh, my God, Falco working by himself planted this marijuana on that poor young man. I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um just laying it on thick to the point where, you know, he, he drove them back together, um, trying to destroy, um, Steve. And what does she say to him? I'd rather be dead than living with you. Yeah. And then I should hate you, but I don't, I just pity you. There's just nothing left. And that's really, and like JJ, that really is his only, it seems motivation connection in the world, whatever it may be. It it seems strange, but it, but it, the way that he applies it anyway, but it is. Yeah. The, um, the only vulnerable expression Lancaster gets is when he looks over that balcony as she walks into times square. And he looks and, actually um, saddened. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, she, Susie gets to walk into the sunrise past, uh, Falco getting beaten up, uh, by the cops in the middle of the street. Yep. And she walks into those dirty streets, like now a player, you know, she's the one who set that whole situation up. She's not just a victim anymore. She is, you know, she, she has a emotionally ruined JJ and physically ruined Falco yeah. uh, as she literally walks by it. Um, and it implies that is, she's know, also heading towards uh, Steve who's in the hospital, correct? So that they can reunite. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he literally did drive them back together, which right. is exactly <laughs> right. what, um, which is exactly what, Falco said what happened. He was like, dude, you've already won. They've already broken up. Why do you need this like extra extra victory of destroying him? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And instead it just, it totally flips on him and doesn't work at all. He's undone by the one narrative he can't control. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Really, really great stuff. And again, also, you know, we, this is such a writerly film. I feel like we spent a lot of time on some of the dialogue and the plot in this one, just because a lot of it's so great. Yeah. But like really great sense of, um, like atmosphere to it as well. Um, oh, I love the way they shoot to, the city, like just everyone moving in the background. That's what I was going to say oh, too. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Well, and, and they said that they couldn't avoid that because um, mm-hmm. like literally yeah. they were shooting on these really busy streets and they, you know, they said that there were, there were times where uh, Tony Curtis fangirls were like toppling police <laughs> barricades to get onto the set and shit. Like, Oh, that's so, unreal. <laughs> So the, like the, the intensity of how busy just the New York location shooting was and how sort of chaotic and pungent they make the atmosphere of the film um, as well. And then the, you know, the, the intensity of the performances that hammer home how devious and sort of morally bankrupt uh, this sort of exhausting sense of ambition that these characters have is. And yeah, it's really sort of claustrophobic and calculating and, and eventually, you know, really, you know, when it wants to be very nasty and, uh, you know, uh, inhuman sometimes the way that he, yeah. they, they treat people and getting you into the, the headspace of these characters who have just such a low opinions of, of the people around them and how they're all just tools for, you know, their own designs and everything. And it makes it so, so the way much that, grosser. You know, they the don't. style gets you into that too is, is well done. Yeah. And it just makes it so much grosser. Like we said that they don't, these characters a lot of the time don't need to be doing this stuff. It's, it's, it's all based on like, egotism and their place in the world and just like yeah. their, their uh, reputation. And so that I, once again, a core difference there, it's like, it's not desperation. These people are just doing it because they want a position in life and it makes it just that much grosser. 
Yeah, it makes it that much more dirty yeah. and kind of um, menacing when you realize that, you know, it literally is just power games and the right. film, you know, tries to make clear on the streets and the clubs and the restaurants that, you know, there's a very clear hierarchy to the way that these characters interact with each other. And some of a lot of it is through talking, which is why we have to, had to talk so much about the way that these characters speak to each other and the things that they say. Yeah, because yeah. um, a lot of it is it's, just it's, people it's, trying to convince other people of things. And so it requires a lot of... Yeah, I mean... it. Charisma. Yeah, it's something. It's what really it's gets you to understand those power dynamics and who's playing who. And you know, it's a, it's 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 very Billy Wilder is someone I thought <laughs> sure. about while I, yeah. you know um, watching this, and especially too because uh, with uh, with the whole journalists are monsters angle, I was thinking a lot about Ace in the Hole, <laughs> yeah, definitely, which we covered on this show uh, like maybe a year or two ago for November as well. Um, what were you going to say, Casey? I was just going to say it's something that both movies do beautifully, which is uh, that there are you know, examples that we see in both movies of people living honest lives, or even if they're doing dishonest things, they're living honestly within those parameters, and that both Sidney Falco and, um, and Harry from Night in the City could have lived a better life if they had just sort of chosen to, like, pick a lane within the pecking order and stuck to it, but their aspirations to be someone and the face of people who actually are someone destroy them. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, pivoting towards a reductive rating round on this one, because this has been a long episode, but these were two big movies and I felt like they deserved the conversations. Um, Jamie, I'm going to let you go first on this one. Yeah, sure. I don't, I don't have uh, too much more to add. I think the the performances in this are, are are unbelievable. We were just talking about how just writerly this this movie is, and they have to give a lot of complicated dialogue at very high speeds a lot of the time, it seems, um, mm-hmm. and just a lot of really good charismatic performances. Um, I also I want to specifically say, because we were just talking about uh, Lancaster and Curtis a lot, but uh, Susan Harrison is also really, really good as the uh, mm-hmm. tragic sister. Um, she th- that moment, especially at the end, when she's saying that she's going to commit suicide and kind of battling it out with Falco, is is fantastic. Really good stuff. And uh, much like Night in the City, this movie just has uh, a pacing that just never lets up. Uh, it, it never stops there. Someone's always scheming. Someone's always trying to move forward to the next thing. And, um, and then eventually it's, it's one of those films that all of that just kind of comes together, uh, and destroys the character. Uh, this one, it seemed it had a little bit less, uh, what we'll, we'll say Falco is the, I would say the most damage from this besides oh you know what steve and falco i did you, you kind of forget about steve there because he's not in the ending <laughs> climax but that's true but but um there's a little bit at least more hope with the with the sister at, at, at the end there um whereas with i guess night in the city <laughs> it's completely bleak like nobody has any hope at the end of that um but but i will say that this one also goes to some grosser places like what we were talking about with falco and uh, the that rita scene with the the cigarette waitress really yeah. sleazy stuff right there. So um, people aren't murdered, but they're ruined in other ways. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, th- this is, this is really good stuff. I think for me, um, it's like in that high four area. I don't know if this would ever get the five. I, I still find uh, when I, this is my second time watching it, but it was a year or two since I watched it last. And I still found just how fast moving the movie is to be a little bit complicated and confusing at times. Um, 
but that being said, I still love all the writerly qualities of it and all that. So I wouldn't take anything away from it. It's just, uh, there's a lot coming at you all the time. And so I just think I want to revisit it again, really. So yeah, for now, I think it's going to be a uh, high four. Yeah, I, I, I'm in I'm in the same um, boat where I, I, I go into this every time being like, this is the one where it's really going to click. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is going to be like the the super five for me, like it is for so many other people. Um, but I, I, I kind of agree that, the, you know, the thing that kind of holds me back a little bit is that, you know, despite the fact that I really like how writerly it is, it is very, very writerly <laughs> to the yeah. point where like characters are sometimes used as clever mouthpieces when I feel like there are stuff that could have been communicated with more, you know, sort of expression filmmaking instead sure in yeah. some cases even though again there's a lot of really great cinematography and a lot of really great you know visual choices that they they made with this this film that i think you know uh, accentuate the character work like again a lot of the ways that they shoot jj a lot of the ways that they follow you in the headspace with um falco and and everything like that but it just doesn't get to that place where um you know, a lot of the the more bleak existential masterpieces of this genre do. And I think I think honestly, one of the reasons that it, it might do that is kind of stupid um, <laughs> is is just that uh, the stakes are a little low for me yeah. watching this. Like the, the, the emotional mean. stakes are high um, and usually stakes, you know, being you know, small aren't really a problem. Sometimes I really like that. We just talked about Long Good Friday and I really loved that the, the chaotic massacres <laughs> yeah. that take place in that movie are over like $5,000. Like <laughs> right. it just really underscores the bleak point about, you know, the the violence and power that those characters wield. Yeah. Um, but for me here, I, I, I do feel like they're trying to bring out and they do in some of the writing and filmmaking a real sense of danger and, and heartache to it. And uh, the big climax of that for me, just being a dude planting weed on another dude, uh, I, w- I was I was expecting something I think a little bit more uglier the first time I watched it. Um, it just it, it doesn't rival something like I don't know uh, picking a noir out of a hat. The big heat, sure, um, where they like, kind of like the internal ugliness of those characters is is like really expressed in how you know violent actions and you know like when when the uh, coffee pot Lee Marvin <laughs> disfigures that woman with a coffee pot. Oh my god. Um, crazy like really really brutal and i guess i'm not saying this movie needs to get you know really violent or it needs to have a shootout to be better it just feels like um you know for a movie that does get really down and dirty and it does have some sequences that do like the one that we talked about with rita especially yeah i was expecting the climax to get a little bit uh dirtier there there but was again, an alternative the, ending uh where Susie both commit was there? There, there well there are several apparently scripted but there was one where Susie did commit suicide and there was another oh, wow. oh there, my god there was another where tony curtis is murdered on the streets by the cops so like, okay there several- I, I wonder if tony curtis being murdered might have done it for me <laughs> I don't know. Either way, I I, tell. it's not so a he, huge deal. I know that I, 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 I do know that they imply it through kind of Steve that he's hospitalized, that he wasn't killed. But do they ever outright show or say if Curtis is killed? Uh, they don't. So no. I, st- I still take it to think that he is. But that's what I thought. But it's yeah, it is. It is hard to say because it's 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 based on like a physical beating. So he could just be knocked out and really, really hurt. Yeah. The, 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 I don't the, know. The, the way that I viewed it is that it, it just mirrors what happened to Steve, Steve yeah. which is he just gets beaten by the cops. Yeah, um, that would make sense. But yeah, hard, hard to say. Um, but either way, 
doesn't take too much away from it because again the emotional clarity and severity of what they've done to the sister yeah yeah um and how they've manipulated and and abused her and it is very very well drawn out and you know i could see some people arguing the movie doesn't need to go further than that um and uh all of that stuff is really uh, deeply felt i think um so despite the fact that i think it could have uglied itself up even a little bit more but beyond the writerly perversities which i think are really effectively dirty yeah really good um this uh this is still very dark and and scary when it needs to be and uh yeah watching these characters plot the brutal downfall of others in real time and watch people either lose themselves or in the case of Susie self-actualize in this underworld that's no longer just on the streets but now you know uh in 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 the high rises yeah um with 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 JJ and in journalism and politics and the, the, the entire film is very cynical and witty and slimy and you know uh, all of the things that make up a great noir. So very high four for me. Uh, yeah, I will also go with the very high four. Uh, you all had mentioned the writerliness, so I did want to call attention to uh, a couple things that came up while I was listening to commentary tracks and looking for all the information I could find. Uh, but uh, James Nairmore uh, wrote a book on Sweet Smell of Success. He also does the Criterion Commentary and he drew my attention to something about what makes the dialogue so effective. And he refers to it as ricochet dialogue, which is that mm. usually in a scene, like if you have a scene with uh, Lancaster and with, um, with Sydney, there's usually like a side character somewhere that's also participating in the conversation so that while they're talking, like their attention will be drawn away and they'll shoot something to like the person next to them and then go back to the conversation at hand. And like the conversation ping pongs that way. And once that was brought to my attention, I couldn't help but notice that like almost every scene is structured that way. Even, even scenes where they're just interacting with like other side characters, there'll be another side character that will come in and interject somewhere and I, I found that <laughs> such like a fascinating like way to block a scene. But also uh, I, I wanted to bring attention to um, one of the, like a lot of this, like the structure and everything was by uh, Lehman, who we'd mentioned earlier, but a lot of the dialogue, almost, almost all of it was rewritten by the uh, Broadway writer Clifford Odets. And apparently like right. that was such an intense process that like it took him four months to rewrite the dialogue. And usually he would just hand them pages from his typewriter and they would film them that day because they were in such a crunch. So I feel like a lot yeah. of that frantic pace in the dialogue comes through on like just the process of he is just giving them a page. Like this is what I have right now. Go and do it real fast. Um, yeah, so I, I think that really That's comes cool. through. I, I I enjoy the I agree. I enjoy the speed and intensity of those scenes. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say um, wonderful performances from uh, Curtis and Lancaster. Even if they were not enjoyed at the time, I think history has has proven their initial instincts right. Uh, yeah. I, I yeah. do like how dirty this movie is, and honestly, I I kind of enjoy that the the stakes aren't necessarily. Uh, life or death, so to it speak. It does kind of make the scenes like with Rita that much grosser, just because he's willing to do something so disgusting for something kind of small. Yeah, in a, in a way. So I I, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that this is a a very true uh, noir experience, even without the murder angles, just because like it is it is just about like 
the the absolute downfalls of like Western society and that pursuit <laughs> of capital. Um, yeah, the sweet smell of success. Uh, you know, it amounts to shit. Like it's nothing. Like <laughs> yeah, shit uh, and blood. Shit and blood. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't smell good. That's for sure. But yeah, it, it is a fantastic movie. Uh, James Wong House street cinematography, the writing, the directing, just everything is just a perfect confluence of events. And I, yeah, I think it's a timeless movie and I can never get tired of it. Hell yeah. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up. But before we wrap it up, I wanted to throw in one, something we didn't mention, but is written in my quotes here. Cause, uh, I just have to bring it up Two, not one, but two lines about pretzels in this film. Oh yeah. <laughs> Very important to bring those up because what is it? It's, uh, uh, Tony Curtis says it at one point where he says, if you're funny, I'm a pretzel. <laughs> and then someone else says it to JJ at one point where he says, uh, you've got more twists than a barrel of pretzels. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just a, a writerly tick. He, you know, he was, he, the, he was holding uh, one what's up that a, day. Yeah. I was like, do you know what? What was, what was the guy's name that you just said? Uh, Casey, uh, he was eating pretzels yeah, that Clifford day. Clifford O'Dell was eating <laughs> some pretzels. He was writing it. <laughs> <laughs> And it made it into the script twice. Incredible. That's so funny. But yeah, no, very good film. And I think that that wraps it up for everything um, this week. That was uh, The Night in the City and Sweet Smell uh, of Success. Thanks so much, Casey, for uh, bringing these films with you and, and for joining us this week. Don't remove the gangplank, um, sleazoids. You might want to get back on board. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you've got anything uh, to plug while you're here, uh, feel free to do so, even if it's just your your Twitter account where you're talking about things. Uh, sure. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I. you can follow me on Twitter at Manovsky Article. I post about things I like, and sometimes other people find enjoyment in that. Otherwise, <laughs> uh, if you happen to listen to this episode because you followed me on Twitter and came to this podcast, Sleedzoids is a great show. Uh, and I recommend you listen to as much of it as possible. Thank you very Damn. much. Well, thank you very much. Um, for for our listeners, we're going to be back in uh, one week's time, wrapping up Noir-vember with, uh, with uh, a little trip over to Japan. We're going to be talking about Takeshi Kitano for the first time on this show, and we're going to be talking about two crime films um, by him that I've wanted to talk about for a while. We're going to talk about one violent cop from 1989 and Sonatine, Ooh. which uh, both bonafide classics. And, yeah. I'm so yes. excited. Uh, so uh, patreon.com slash these podcast. That's next week's bonus episode. Look forward to that. And then uh, the week after that, we are going to be back with a special guest and we're going to be talking about two films that I haven't seen. Um, and, uh, our guest <laughs> very much laughed when I agreed to do it because they were like, you're going to regret that you just agreed to do this double feature I love it already. Uh, and you only, you only agreed to do it because you don't know what they are. Uh, <laughs> Disclosure 1994 directed by Barry Levinson and Jade 1995 directed by William Friedkin. From what I understand, oh, these are nineties, yeah. possibly erotic thrillers of some kind. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I know Jade, very, is, but I don't know the twist. <laughs> Apparently, both have very, very twisted uh, gender politics to them that our guest is very excited to get into. (laughs) (laughs) Going to get us in trouble. Let's do this. We're going to get in trouble two weeks weeks from now. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that'll uh, wrap it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.